The Joe Rogan Experience. Train by day, Joe Rogan Podcast by night, all day. So you like it down here better? I love it. Yeah? I love it. Yeah, people are so nice. There's less of them, so they're not a burden. We up? <laughs> yeah, you know, I think big cities, you just, people just become in your, they get in your way. Right. And no one's in your way here. Everyone's friendly. Yeah. It's like normal. That's They're great. normal people. Plus, it's not tainted by show business. As much as people try to pretend that Hollywood, it, you know, doesn't have an effect on their lives. I'm in real estate. Get the fuck out of here! Like everyone is tainted by that the weirdness of that city. Yeah, because it's a city that's predicated on being full of shit. Like you have to I was pretend gonna say, or something. Yeah, yeah, like everybody, as soon as they're talking, they're, they're, they start lying, basically, <laughs> right? Well, it's they're, like an they're angle. for it's... sure, like they're selling themselves, right? And promoting an angle. And right. out here, no one's doing that, right? It's right. so refreshing. <laughs> it's like this is Mike. He does. He makes barbecue. Oh, oh, hi, Mike. Like Mike's a normal guy, you know. Must take some time to sort of de- decompensate and decompress. Get back to. It took a few weeks. Mm. That's it. And then I was like, yeah, I embraced it right away. Because, you know, we when we moved here, um, we st- I started looking in May of 2020. I was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. I, I see the writing on the wall. Mm-hmm. Because it- there was two weeks to stop the spread and flatten the curve. I'm like, okay, makes sense. That makes sense. I was all on board. And then as time went on, I'm like, this is not two weeks. And then they were talking about more restrictions, and then they were shutting down outdoor dining and this and that. And I was like, what What are they doing? Oh, they're, they're enjoying this. They're enjoying <laughs> telling people what to do, which is just basic human nature. To pretend that they would, that government agencies, that people who wanted to be mayor, people that wanted to be governor, would somehow or another avoid all the pitfalls that are just naturally a part of being a person when a person has power especially power over a bunch of people that are scared mm. and you're offering solutions and you're standing there and we have to keep the safety of our communities in mind right like, you know that kind of shit yeah I, I think that's a, a big story of modern America is people just not being able to deal with the idea that there are just aren't solutions for some things that yeah. you just there's for some things you just can't fix it by fiat what's fascinating to me though is that people will blame everyone except the people that were actually responsible for the virus. <laughs> right. Like, this is a virus that most likely, I mean, I'm not 100% sure, but I'm about 90% sure that this thing came from a fucking laboratory. Mm-hmm. And all the stuff that I've read and all the emails from Peter Daszak and Fauci and the NIH, when you look at the way they were looking at it and how they were kind of panicked, and then you look at their... Their absolute, their, their their belief that so supposedly they're broadcasting that it, there's no way it could have come from a lab, and then you see their actual emails, and you go, oh, you fuckers, like you know, you know this probably came from a lab, and you're doing your best job to try to obfuscate, to try to confuse people, to try to muddy the water and make it like, just get just get it as far away from you as you can. But the reality is this probably came from a fucking lab. But that's not what people are mad at. People are mad at people who take alternative medications. People are mad at people who downplay the severity of it. People are mad at, they're mad at all kinds of things, but they're not mad at the fucking source. Mm -hmm. The actual source, which is most likely that level four bio lab in Wuhan, China. Most likely. 
Yeah, at minimum, those emails show that they they thought they had a serious PR problem on their hands. Yeah. I mean, I think you, you can look at them in a number of different ways, but at minimum, it shows that. To be charitable. To be, to be totally charitable. Um, and that should have been a big story all by itself, and it wasn't. Yeah, it so, wasn't. It's yeah. it's a, it was a strange time, but it's this is normal. This is a normal time when people are under heavy anxiety, mm-hmm. because most people do not know how to handle like extreme stress or scary unknown situations. That's why they like a normal job that starts at nine, it ends at five, and you have two weeks paid vacation, and you have the, your this and you have your that, and everything's laid out, and you know what to expect. People do not like when you don't know what to expect. Yeah, I mean, that was a big um, thing for me. I, I lived in Russia for, for so many years, and you know, in Moscow, there were constant terrorist attacks at the time because the Chechens and the Russians were having these issues. But when 9-11 happened in the United States, people were traumatized by that beyond all proportion, it seemed to me, because just in America, we're just not used to having to deal with all sorts of things. Yeah. Uh, and so they, they, they just don't deal well with stress uh, when it's an unusual situation. It has to, they have to be in the, the kind of the, the lane of safety. Yeah, it's, um, we're not used to it. Mm. I mean, it's weird because we start so many wars. Yeah. And we don't have any of them over here. <laughs> right, right, exactly. So fucked. Exactly. Yeah. I have a good buddy of mine who's my former kickboxing trainer. Uh, shout out to Shuki. He lives in Israel, but he lived in America for a little while and then he went back to Israel. But um, I, I was hanging out with him and his family over his house one night for dinner, and they're playing the bongo drums and dancing, and like they're really like festive people. And I go, why are Israelis like so happy? And he goes, because over in Israel, you never know. Right. He goes, at any minute, you could die. So fucking party, party, party. <laughs> like, you know, it was just, he was always happy. Right. But okay. he, he had this attitude because of the, the conditions, because yeah. there's a real fear in the air. Right. The presence of death is all around you. Yeah. So you're more conscious of, of living life. Yeah, absolutely. In America, it's completely the opposite. Obviously. Exactly. Yeah. It's the opposite. We yeah. are basically like trust fund kids. You know, in terms of like uh, how we handle the real adversity of of the the world, and and forget about just the stuff that we create. I mean, if anything natural occurred, any like real disaster occurred, you'd you'd see mad panic in the streets. All these these there's so many people out there that are prepping, and so many people that prepare. But are you really? Do you are you really ready? Because right. I don't think you are. Right. I think when the shit actually hits the fan, it's the tiniest, smallest percentage of the people that are going to be able to like gather up their senses and make some sense out of this and and regroup. Yeah, but I I, I think they're not preparing because they're enjoying being miserable right now. <laughs> I mean, you, know, you were talking about that before, but yeah, no, this this is like the most unfun period in American history, at least in my lifetime. Uh, yeah, it's it's unfunny. Uh, entertainment isn't fun i don't know it's uh, it's miserable well it's very tense yeah it's very tense and there's a lot of people that are profiting off of that tension Mm -hmm. there's a lot of uh, anger merchants out there you know that are essentially elevating their brand by just getting mad at things and having the least charitable view of people the least least charitable view of situations the most polarizing arguments of right versus left and vaccinated versus unvaccinated and yeah no i spent a lot of time on this the 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 press aspect of it is just horrible because 
financially, you know, that's the way these businesses work now. They, um, they're they trying to create the, an addictive experience of being upset, yeah. and they know exactly how to do it. And they've they've kind of moved all the people in the business who used to be um, who used to do the job of uh, moderating and making sure that people saw all the different sides of the issue. Um, they've all been kind of shoved out of the business, and now it's just one gigantic anxiety machine. Uh, you know, if you turn on MSNBC or CNN or you know or even Fox, you know, basically their their job is to get you worked up about stuff. Well, that's the only way they can make money. Exactly. That's what's so crazy about the world that we're living in. It's, but what's interesting is, I think, the positive aspect of this, and let's try to find the silver lining, right? I think the positive aspect of this is it's really highlighting the importance of independent media. You know, people like Crystal and Sager from Breaking Points, mm -hmm. Kyle Kalinsky, Glenn Greenwald, yourself, these independent journalists who I can turn to. I'll go, okay, I know if I, I'm reading a Matt Taibbi article, you're going to tell me exactly what's going on. And there's not many of you. Right. There's, there's a small handful of you where I know I can get unbiased, intelligent observations. Yeah, no, it's great. And, and this... Uh, I think a lot of people uh, in what we're finding, and you're of course familiar with this, is that there's a massive audience out there that is very frustrated with traditional media, the manipulative aspects of yeah. it, the predictability of it. Um, you know, the, uh, and so yeah, they're 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 coming to to places like Substack, and I spent my whole life in the media business. I, I had an editor once who called it. Uh, managing the decline, like the expectation in media was always that there was going to be less and less money forever because audiences were dwindling because they just didn't like our, the product that we were putting out. In independent media now, it's the opposite. It, it's skyrocketing. There's incredible growth. You obviously know this. Uh, Substack is doing amazingly well. Yeah, uh, it's 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 a very bizarre experience as a, as a journalist to be part of that. Um, but it's. It's, it's been really, really cool. I don't think it would be possible any other way. I think there has to be this massive decline in the believability of CNN and, you know, and, you know fill in the blank, like whatever mainstream big-time publication. The fucking Rolling Stone, when they printed that horse dewormer story mm -hmm. about Oklahoma, I'm like, Jesus Christ, do you guys not have anybody working there? that yeah. can fact Look at the photo they used. It's Oklahoma in the summer, and you got people with winter coats on. <laughs> right? Are you guys out of your fucking minds? Like, yeah. what is going on over there? So, so what happens in media is we have this expectation that if something is published in another reputable news organization, we assume that it's been checked and that it's true. That somewhere down the line, whoever did the original reporting actually checked it. And, and what happened in that case is. You know, Let's explain explain what the story was, so people can. So basically, us. Uh, an ER doc, if I remember correctly, in uh, in Oklahoma, in rural Oklahoma, uh, gave a, uh, an interview to a TV station, uh, and essentially he was saying that there was a, a problem with uh, people who were taking ivermectin, um, and and they were getting so sick that they were lining up outside uh, the ERs and preventing people who had gunshot wounds from being treated, right? Yes. Now, me as a reporter, if I hear that story, the first thing I'm going to think is, 
are there really that many gunshot victims in in rural Oklahoma? <laughs> like they like there there's already a you know a little bit of a problem right. with that, right? You would want to check that right away. What actually happened is some wires got crossed. Like the guy was talking about one thing and and somebody who saw the story assumed a correlation that wasn't there. And then it got retweeted by Rachel Maddow. And then that she doubled down on it the next day. Exactly. Like, which is wild. The fact that the, the facts were clearly available and she doubled down on it. First of all, do you know how many people that have actually ever even gotten sick from ivermectin? Ever? I, I in don't the know. Billions yeah. of people. What did Peter, Peter Atia read it off to us? It's less than 100. Right. Ever. I mean, it's ever. It's been used for river blindness for how long, right? It's an incredibly safe medication, years. right? Yeah. Yeah. Now, that's that's not to say that it necessarily works as a, as a COVID treatment, right? Like, uh, but there's so much dis- disinformation yes, about this it's whole a, thing. It's a different conversation. That's right, a different, yeah. different conversation. But the thing about Rachel retweeting that and doubling down, what's so interesting about that, and this is a phenomenon that's, that's completely new in, in my experience in media, is that we companies now know that their audiences will forgive them for making mistakes as long as the mistakes are in the right direction. Right. As long as it's ideologically correct. As long as it's ideologically correct. So there was a whole generation of reporters who were were raised like me. Like our whole thing was the night before we published something, we, we couldn't sleep. Because we were afraid of that one thing that would be fucked up in the in the report yeah. that somebody would catch the next day and that might end your career, right? Like if you got something really, really badly wrong, it was potentially a career ending thing, especially if you if you made some kind of ethical mistake in forgetting to check something. Um, so that terror was was common to all reporters until recently. Now all of a sudden, when you make a really, really bad mistake, no your audience is probably going to be fine with it. They don't punish you for it in the same way. And they've basically brought in a whole generation of people who have this ethos of, well, if I make, so what if it's wrong? You know, which is, which is why all these people no longer have faith in these companies. And, and they can't see it. It's amazing that they can't see it. They, but people are leaving these companies. They're, they're no longer trusting them. And they don't see that correlation, which is incredible to me. It's very strange, but again, it fuels this thing that I think is very good, which is trustworthy, independent media. Like Crystal and Sagar, when they were when they had their old show, uh, Rising on the mm-hmm. Hill, um, they decided to leave. And when they decided to leave, we were all, we had a group conversation on the phone, and, and you know they were asking me advice, and I was like. I think you guys are going to be gigantic when you leave. I think it's going to be bigger than ever. You'll you'll be completely free. You won't have to worry about any editorial control. You, and you don't need anybody. I mean, I'll help you. Everybody else will help you. The show's already excellent. But it's excellent entirely because of you two. Mm-hmm. It has nothing to do with being attached to any other organization that's going to siphon money off of you. Yeah. And yeah. so look at them. They're, they, they were number one almost instantly. Right. And they've maintained that position the entire time. And they're bigger than ever now. Right. Yeah. And... They were raised, they had that hesitation because we're raised in, in media, in, in professional corporate media, to be terrified of leaving the fold. Now, yes. I actually came up through alternative media, so I wasn't afraid of, of leaving it. I had my own newspapers when I lived overseas. Um, the idea of being out in the wilderness didn't frighten me so much. So when I moved to Substack, I, I just thought, this is probably going to be cool. It's probably going to work, right? But That's a lot cool. of people who came up 
who came up, yeah. you know, the, you, you do think, wow, I'm never gonna, I'm never gonna get back in to the club, and if I if I don't make enough money, that's it. I mean, you know, that's it for me. Which is why they're staying. But you're look look at look at how much success they've had. The audience out there is huge. Yeah. They're probably making more money than they ever dreamed that they, they would they would make. And um, you know, there's opportunities to do all kinds of amazing things now because of that. Yeah, there really is. And um, you know, I was really fortunate that I had other jobs when I first started doing this podcast. And the podcast was never when the, the beginning of it at, at first was never for money. It was just for fun. Mm-hmm. I never thought of it as a job at all. And so when I had gotten it to the point where it started to become valuable. There were a bunch of vultures that tried to buy half of it or take over. Like one, there was one like podcast network that literally wanted to take fifty percent of the show just to be on the network. <laughs> and I was like, "What are you talking about? Like, this why is, would I do that?" <laughs> they, they go, well, well, "Well, you'll have more ad revenue because you'll be connected to our uh, whatever our network." I go, "What fucking network?" Right. Like, the, like this is a podcast, man. This is a different. Like they didn't even understand. The, and this was quite a few years ago before it had gotten big. But, but the point is, I know friends that took that deal, mm-hmm. that gave their podcast over to this network and became a part of it. And now they're probably kicking themselves, right? Because like I'm sure it's like a permanent deal. Like I'm sure they own fifty percent of it forever or whatever percentage they. I mean, maybe they started with fifty and negotiated down. I don't know, but the point is there's so many people that when given the opportunity to have like some real security, like this is going to, you're going to be connected to this network. They're going to protect you. They're going to bring in the ads. You don't have to do anything and they just take a percentage of it, but you will always have income because you'll be connected to us and we are a big corporation and you're like, oh, just like when I was on NBC, this is going to be great. Like it'll give me security and you start thinking about your mortgage and you start thinking about your kid's college and all that stuff and you go, okay, this is a good thing. And it's hard. It's hard to just say, no, no, I'm going to be independent. But this is the time. This is the this is the best time ever to be independent. Yeah. No. And and that that's why it 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 is a very hard decision for people to walk away and go independent and, and do the thing. You know what I did, what Glenn did, what Crystal yeah. and Kyle did. Um, but it works. And uh, and the other choice, staying with traditional media, is increasingly not a good bargain for you. Not only um, you know, are, are, is the piece of the pie there getting smaller and smaller all the time because their ratings are getting worse, the advertising revenue is dropping off, but the ideological conformity in those, yeah. in those organizations is getting worse. And, and um, that is something that never used to exist before, uh, or ne- at least not to this degree, anywhere near this degree. So you're going to be miserable, miserable doing that. You might as well do the job the way you want to do it, do it correctly, uh, and get paid you know, in a commensurate way for doing it. I think there's a bunch of people, though, that haven't established a large following that are worried, rightly so, of being lost in this. You sure. Know? So I don't think this is available to anyone. It's obviously available to you and to Glenn and to Jimmy Dore and a lot of these other people that have are, they've already gathered up a large, loyal audience because they know that they can trust these people. Mm-hmm. Or the, the people rather know they can trust them to, to be honest and to just give their, their take on things. But there's a lot of people that are, they're stuck because, you know, they're not really well known and they're kind of in this system and they're realizing while they're in this system that it's, it's pretty fucked. And you have two choices. Either you try to fight against it and you might get ostracized and 
or you try to conform and then you get lost right and then you become what you what you despise right which yeah. is more common than not right yeah i think that's what's happening I, either they're moving you the people out which you, you know you see at, a, at an organization like the new york times where they're just kind of moving the old guard out yeah. the old the old traditional reporting types uh, and they had a lot of really amazing reporters at the New York Times, people who really knew how to do the job. And they're just kind of being pushed out, whether, yeah. you know, for one reason or another. Um, or, you know, the, the other thing is you, you stay in and gradually the mindset takes hold of you and you, and, you, and you get lost mentally, you know, and I think that's what's happening to a lot of people. <sighs> I mean, I, I knew Rachel back in her Air, Amer- Air America days. Um, you know, we were friends once, sort of, and uh, it's just... It's amazing to me what's what's happened. Uh, I read your book um, with her and uh, who else on the Hannity's cover? Hannity's on the, on the cover. Yeah, yeah. Is that hating? Hating. That's right. Mm-hmm. I didn't want to fuck it up, so I didn't want to <laughs> guess. Okay. But um, when you compared her and you said Rachel Maddow is is Bill O'Reilly, mm-hmm. you're like Jesus Christ. And that, but you're like, but wait, I think he's right. Like it's just ideologically opposite, but the same kind of thing where this just like blind allegiance to the party doctrine right yeah and not a reporter anymore no and and what what o'reilly did during the iraq war era you know he was he was using this sort of hyper patriotic persona his whole thing was um you know sort of bullying people who uh you know weren't behind the war effort enough or who you know and if if they if he didn't like them, he would have sort of accuse them of being, you know, in sympathy with the terrorists. And, you know, Rachel's basically doing that same gig with, but it's Russians this yes. time around. You know, yes. it's it's the same act. It's just the, a different audience. Uh, and they're using exactly the same. Me- it's it's this audience, audience optimization method of making money where you identify the audience. Then you give them a whole bunch of information that you know is going to you know, sort of please their sensibilities and and uh, tickle their prejudices, uh, and you just keep feeding that stuff to them over and over and over again. Uh, and and yeah, she's playing that game. It works to a degree, but she's then so you, rich, right? Yeah, she's, she's taking balling this out of new control. Job. Yeah, yeah. She's balling out of control, and now she only works like what, like way less hours or something. Right. Like, yeah, I don't know exactly what the new deal is, but. Um, but it's like way less broadcast time, right? right? Yeah, for more money. Yeah, and I mean that's a tough job. I mean, you would know, right? I mean, like four hours, however many um, you know days a week doing doing live work Let like that. Let me stop is... you right there. It's not hard. No, you not this. So? This is not hard. <laughs> this is the biggest scam that's ever existed. This job. The fact that people think this is hard. Now, I've had hard jobs. This is not one of them. Mm-hmm. No, I mean it requires you to pay attention. Right. That's what true. the fuck. You know, right. I like to pay attention anyway. Right. Right, it's not hard. Yeah, it's not hard. Well, yeah, there, uh, there's hard jobs out there. This it would be a fucking that's true. travesty to call this compared a hard to job. a real job. I, I yeah. keep forgetting that. Yes. Yeah, which is something that uh, one should never yeah, we're, do. We're we're removed from real jobs by right. too many years. No, I've I've had real jobs. In fact, believe it or not, I uh, you you played the Wilbur Theater, right? Yes. So uh, I. Worked demolition once, and I demolished uh, my crew. Demolished that basement. No shit. Yeah. Wow. Uh, yeah. That. So we we did the job that uh, helped turn that into the Wilbur Theater. That, wow. That's, that cellar a million years ago. That's. Pretty I was cool. being punished for for uh, getting. 
um, I got in a scrape, uh, in, like a drugs thing, and so my parents decided that I needed a. Um, to learn a little bit about real work, so I, end, I ended up doing demolition for a long time in Boston. So, dude, I had a construction job when I was well. I had many of them because my father was an architect growing up. But um, when I was 19 years old, my buddy Jimmy, Jimmy Lawless, shout out to Jimmy, um, he got me a gig working with him. I think I only lasted like a month. They, I, we were building a Knights of Columbus Hall, <laughs> in um, in somewhere in Massachusetts, and. It was during the summer, so it was hot as fuck, muggy, oh, yeah. and I was carrying cement and pressure-treated lumber all day. That's <laughs> all I did. And I remember I would, and this was back when I was still competing, so I would go to the gym after work, and I could not do anything. I, I could barely hit the bag. I was so tired. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is a very important moment for me because I could just be doing this forever. <laughs> and and you, you'd want to be doing anything but that. Anything but that. Yeah, I was exactly. 19, and, I, and it was a real wake-up call. I was like, okay, yeah. we got to figure this out because there's no way this is going to work. Yeah. I can't do this. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, in, in that first job that I did, you, you know, the, the big stairs there at the, at the Wilbur Theater yeah. to go down. So we had to basically jackhammer a whole bunch of concrete out of that floor and then figure out a way to get it up into a dumpster like you know so it was big big chunks of uh concrete and stone and we tried all these different ways like driving a bobcat up the stairs like all these different things there was no way to automate it the only way to do it was to put it in a rubber bucket and have two guys carry each one up up and down the stairs so the guy i was with had just gotten out of jail and he was like um this is what the, the the people who built the pyramids must have felt like, you know, carrying <laughs> carrying that stuff up the stairs. So, yeah, yeah, if that's how they did it. Um, I used to work in that basement. There was a comedy club in that basement called Duck Soup. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the guys who owned the Comedy Connection, uh, uh, Bill Blumenreich, who eventually took over the Wilbur, he bought it after these guys had kind of failed this one. Pro they they decided to try this project of a, a really high end comedy club that only did clean comedy for like respectable people and then like they they served really nice food and it did not work out huh it's like because right across the street was nick's comedy stop which right. was like wild and they were they were literally offering you you can get paid in cash or cocaine like it was <laughs> that's real like that was really that sounds like where all the actual comics would want to go exactly play. right so we would work across the street but you had to like you had to do surgery on your act you had to like remove parts of your act to, to be able to work there. What did they put in the sign? Like comedy, but less funny? Or is that <sighs> no? The, you know, the idea was like the, you know, Duck Soup, the the great Groucho Marx, right. uh, Marx Brothers movies. Um, that movie was, you know, they thought it was like one of the great classic movies, and they thought it would be fun to like have this classy comedy club. And so they had all these other options. You know, there were Stitches and the Comedy Connection, all these other clubs. They're like, let's have one club that's like very high end and and beautiful, and it didn't work. Mm. And so then it became an improv after that. The improv took it over after that, and then eventually it just went under. And then Bill. Who's a he's a real businessman. He mm. he turned it into the will. They they did Faneuil Hall for a while, and I think that's when Bill bought them, and then he they converted the Wilbur is now uh, the the big like when comics come to town they work right. There. Yeah, it's that's like, the big yeah. big venue now. Yeah, I did yeah. my last Netflix special there. Right, right, yeah. exactly, exactly. It's a great place. Yeah, absolutely.
Yeah, no. but th those really hard jobs are very important for people. Mm -hmm. That that way, you can never say a podcast is hard work. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, it's, it's not even close. Yeah, but the the thing that's going on now that's really interesting is watching all these pieces shuffle and move around, like the Substack thing and the podcast thing, and and watching the reaction that traditional media has to it. Because Un that's been unbelievable. Go ahead. Why? It's because it used to be they ignored it. And then they recently just have started attacking it, and it's it's fascinating to watch because like their their ship keeps sinking, and as their ship is sinking, they're like, "You fucking, you guys suck!" You know, like this this is terrible. What you're doing over there is terrible. They're, they're going under while they're doing it. it, it it's a, it's amazing. I, I first started hearing about this uh, last year. Uh, I knew somebody who worked at the Times, and he, and, uh, he was basically saying, you know, the, the op-ed page is really worried about Substack. I'm like, why would you be worried? Like, you're the New York Times. You got seven million subscribers. Who cares? But they they're really worried about it, and they, they did. You know, the series of hit pieces have come out over and over and over again. It's one line of attack after another. It's misogynistic. It's it's anti-trans. It's this or that, um, and the. It, it's 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 just a mechanism. It's a cash register. It's not anything. It's not really right. a company, you know. Um, but it it speaks to the desperation within the the news business that they they are convinced that if they are losing audience, it must be because somebody is stealing it from them. Yeah. Uh, whereas what happened in re in fact is that they lost their audience first because and this goes all the way back to the WMD episode. Uh, and then after that, I think Russiagate was a big one uh, that that turned off a lot of people. Uh, and you know they've been steadily losing audience just because of factual issues. And people are they were already out there. That audience was already out there, as you know. Um, but they you know they're, they're trying to blame it on somebody. Whether it's factual or not, I think people are very tired of being lectured to in this sort of like very clear ideological bent. This, the, 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 the angle that they're taking in these, these papers when they're discussing a real news story, when the actual facts are available to people as, the, as they start seeing the facts and then seeing the big picture and then they go back to that original article they read, they get angry, they get annoyed. Like, mm -hmm. you guys are bullshitting me. Like, this is a bullshit version of what happened and it's so clear that you keep doing it in the same direction. So now, every time you read the New York Times or the Washington Post or whatever paper it is, you have to go, okay, how much of this is legit? Well, who's writing it? You have to think, like, which guy is writing it and how accurate is his reporting? How full of shit is he? How did, you know, does she, is she a hardcore lefty or is she, like, a centrist? Like, what, what, do, what, do we, what am I getting here? Right, It yeah. used to be I could just read the New York Times and this is the story. Hey, Jamie, I made a little spill. Chuck me something over there. This stuff, I'm um, um, subconsciously trying to pour it out because I know I'll drink the whole goddamn thing. <laughs> this is this Black Rifle Coffee sugary. It's it's actually, too good. It's really good. Yeah. It's too good. Yeah, this is going to become a new problem. Three hundred fucking milligrams or grams of what? Yeah, milligrams of uh, caffeine. That's a lot. It's awesome. Yeah. So I spilt it. Um, it's it's strange, but I think this is just what happens when something new comes around. 
it's always what happens. There's always like this attack against it, the denial that there's anything wrong with the original product. And I saw it in martial arts. I mean, I was a part of martial arts when you know I was a child, and then when the UFC came along, along there was all of this uh, rejection of the idea behind it. It was barbaric. It was you know you only need this, and you don't need to learn how all this other stuff. And and then eventually everybody gave up. Right and now it's clearly established like that is 100% the best form of martial art for an actual physical confrontation is a combination of all the things mm -hmm. but you see, it's like with everything when something new comes along that's superior there's a rejection of it there's a, an attack against it and then eventually the dust settles and people realize like oh this is what's going on yeah no there's there's a there's a total blindness within the within the media business to uh, they just can't see how audiences perceive them um, you know once upon a time, I think the the idea within the news business was pretty simple. Like reporters were raised, basically, we'll get all the facts, we'll work really hard on getting it right, we'll give it to you, and then you do what you want with it. It's it's <clears throat> it's not our job to tell you what decisions to make. It's our just our job to get it correct, right? And then that's the news. After that, you know, it's up to you to make your own political decisions. Um, but that's why political affiliation didn't necessarily mean so much back in the day. It, w it was always true that basically all reporters were Democrats, but it didn't show so much in the news media once upon a time because we had a professional ethos that just said, we're not supposed to care, right? right. We, go into, we, we go in to cover whatever. We're just going to collect all the facts, get all the quotes, put it out there, make sure everything's been checked, and then it's your, it's your deal. Now there's this new ethos to, th that – what uh, Wesley Lowry, the reporter, calls the view from nowhere journalism, which is what I just described, um, that that's not good enough, that we, uh, they have to compensate for inequities in the system by basically trying to impact how people behave uh, through coverage. And this is what they do all the time. I mean, they're, they're trying to get you to, to make political decisions by how they cover things. And I saw this early on as a, as a campaign reporter. Uh, once when I was much younger, you know, in 2004 and 2008, I would sit in the bus with the reporters and they would be discussing which candidates they were going to describe as fringe, which ones they were, gonna, were going to be described as electable, which ones would be serious, right? Because they, want, they, they enjoyed having the power of deciding for people, you know, who got to be taken seriously and who, who didn't. Um, and... I think that that urge to mold how people act is just ingrained in the business, and it's so off-putting. You know, I think it is. what people, especially with something like the pandemic, people are desperate. They really, really need just to get the basic information. And instead, you know, when the pandemic happened, we were in the middle of this super intense culture war that was revolved around Trump. So everything was viewed through that lens. You know, like hydroxychloroquine, Trump liked it, or Trump said he was taking it, therefore it must be bad, therefore, you know, it must not work. But that's not how it worked. It's not the drug's fault that, done, that, yeah. that Donald Trump took it, you know? Did you see that Fauci had actually written a paper on the effectiveness of, of chloroquine and on I didn't. Uh, coronaviruses? What did he say? It was from 2000, I want to say 2015 or 2016. But there was uh, he he gave a statement about the effectiveness of chloroquine, 
and coronaviruses. Hmm. See if you can find that. Because it's, it's really fascinating. But yeah, it's one of those things that when it came up, when, I mean, Trump fucked so much up just by right. being Trump. Exactly. He broke people's, that Trump derangement syndrome, I used to think that was a funny thing that, you know, not even that funny, but a thing that Republicans would say to try to invalidate anything that, le that liberals would say. Like, oh, they've got Trump derangement syndrome. But as time has gone on, and you've seen it over and over again, and the, the justification for not just bias, but blatant distortions of the facts in order to, to impart a narrative, like clearly doing it on purpose. And they'll, they've done it with almost this righteousness because they're combating something, this evil, right. this evil Trumpster, and this evil Trump thing that's happening. Right. Yeah. No. And, and that again, that's new. Yeah. That, that's a new thing in it's our. It's a new our, thing. So, so another example of that is what you were talking about before the the lab leak story. Yeah. Right. Trump believed it, therefore it must not be true. Right. Whereas, I think the old school reporters would look at it. We wouldn't give a shit. Right. Like it's it's right. whether it came from a lab or whether it came from a cave somewhere, we don't care. Like we're not supposed to care. Our, our job is just to find out, you know. Yeah. Uh, and, and so they would dig and there, there was not a satisfactory explanation, there, you know, throughout all of last year. We, we didn't know exactly. Uh, where it came from. So why did we stop looking? Right. Uh, we stopped looking because it had been decided just sort of collectively that, well, here's the story we're going to have. We're going to stick to it. Anybody who has any other point of view on it is clearly a Trump lover or whatever. And we have to denounce that person. We have to call them a conspiracy theorist. Um, we're going to, we're going to have this fact checking um, that, you know, piously declares that this is wrong, you know, and uh, and of course it turns out that then they backtrack and they think that there's not going to be repercussions for that. Well, you know, that's why people are, are, are fleeing Don't traditional media. Don't you think they media. were forced into it, though? They were forced to backtrack. Yeah, but... they had to because, well, actually, I mean, that, that that's still a little bit of a mystery as to why they suddenly decided to to back off. Well, Josh Rogan was res responsible right. for quite a bit of it, and he's done amazing stuff. I mean, his his work in exposing the the, the whole disinformation campaign and w the the emails and the fact that Fauci was the one that restarted the gain of function research and funding gain of gain of function research, all that stuff. I mean, and and he's a Washington Post guy. He's I mean, he's rock solid. Right. And then that I think there was a bunch of people that kind of when he started reporting all this stuff and saying all these things, a bunch of people that were like, fuck, he went out there. Right. Like, you know, he went out the door and he's like, guys, I can breathe. And everyone's <laughs> like, fuck, should we go outside? You know what I mean? <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like if there was, here, oh, is this uh, the so, Fauci thing? Sort of. 2005. 2005 studies uh, found that chlor yeah, chloroquine, not hydroxychloroquine, was effective in inhibiting the infection and spread of SARS-CoV. The official name for SARS, the research was conducted in cell culture conditions, so uh, in vitro, meaning the drug was not administered to actual SARS patients. That's the same thing that they found with ivermectin, that it stops viral replication in vitro. Yeah, that's uh, yeah. if you look at the, the announcement, for the uh, Oxford study on ivermectin, they use very similar language to yeah. say that this is a drug that has had uh, in vitro success, as in it has some antiviral viral properties. Yeah. Um, 
you know, not there isn't a long record of it, but it has some, right? And that contradicted this, again, it was it was much more of a faith-based thing in the reporting. Exactly. It's, yeah. it's we believe that this is not true, so therefore, um, we're just not going to touch it. Well, uh, the horse dewormer narrative is where, where it got really weird, because it was clearly the same language over and over again, which, by the way, um, that stuff is in heart dewormer for dogs. I have heart dewormer for my dog. Uh, I, didn't, I didn't. I don't even know who bought it, but it was in my house. And the other day, I was like, "Look at this! What's in this?" Mm. And I pick it up, and it's fucking ivermectin. Really? Yeah. And it was, you know, like heart, it, like uh, that company. I think it's called Heart that makes it. Right. Isn't that what it's called? H a r t or something like that. Heart card. Yeah. Maybe. Is that what it is? I don't know. But whatever it is, it was for dogs. There's a picture of a dog on it. I didn't even know we had it in my house. And I open up the package and I look at it. I'm like, motherfucker. But what? The, but they didn't say that's it. Heart, heart guard. That's yeah. it. Mm-hmm. That shit. That shit's ivermectin. There it is. So when they started saying horse dewormer, like that was the thing that kept getting said over and over and over again. Horse dewormer. Horse, 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 horse. Right. Like why, like what happened there? Like how did that narrative get out there when you're talking about a drug that's been administered to, I think it's more than four billion times, four, four billion prescriptions have been filled for that stuff. There's only like, I want to say there's like two billion dog or two billion um, horses on earth. <laughs> like how many, how many billion horses are there? I bet there's not even... There's probably not even two billion horses. So there's like no way. Why would you confuse that? A drug that's been given to so many people. Why would you confuse that as being primarily a horse drug? 58 million. There's only 58 million horses. So we far outnumber horses. This is something I, I, I never knew. Yeah, I, I was pretty sure of that. Yeah. But the fact that you're talking about a drug that couldn't have been given to all the horses, even if they gave it to every fucking horse. Right. Yeah. Now, this was amazing when when they did that. I mean, I had arguments with other people in the business about this because I wrote a couple of stories about ivermectin, um, mainly because the uh, some of the internet platforms were shutting down people who were um, who were talking about it. Right. So companies like Facebook, YouTube, uh, and YouTube. Right. Um, yeah. Sorry. I'm sorry. It was YouTube uh, had. Eliminated among other things like congressional testimony uh, about this, and that that seemed to me just crazy. Like yeah. you know, what even if the person's wrong, you have to leave it up there as a public service. It's you know, you, you should be able to find it. But um, but reporters were absolutely convinced that this drug was evil because I guess because it wasn't the vaccine. Um, and just the whole concept that people would be looking for some other kind of treatment or might or might welcome it was just deeply and profoundly offensive to them. So they they came up with this pejorative term, the horse, you know, this horse dewormer thing. And it was amazing, the unanimity. Like, as you yeah. said, it's, it was in every single story. Like, the, the language was exactly the same. Yeah, it was really strange. Right? And why? And, and, even that is odd because, of, again, once upon a time, the, your, your classic journalist was somebody like Seymour Hirsch, and the whole idea of being a journalist was to not think like other people. Like you, you were, you were your own person. You thought for yourself. You, you made your own decisions about things, and that was valuable. 
the, the whole point of the job was to be like that. Yeah. Because it, it, it required somebody who had the ability to, to look at every situation completely objectively um, and not be affected by peer pressure. Like that, that was a, a prerequisite for being able to do this job well. The idea that we're all going to parrot each other's uh, thinking about things is totally alien to what this job is supposed to be about. And now all of a sudden it's become the opposite. It's become if you even uh, uh, try to opt out of doing that, you know, you're suspect. You're you're going to be you're going to be drummed out of the business, which is just nuts. It's very strange. Another thing that's one of my favorite things to watch is the um, compilation of all of the people on the left talking about how they would never take the vaccine because you never know what's in it. If Trump's hands are on it, oh, God. that it's going to, you know, who knows what the long term consequences of it are going to be. Right. And this is uh, Biden, fucking Biden, when he was running for president. You, are you going to take the shot? Who knows what it's going to do to you? Kamala. There's no long term tests. Kamala saying she wouldn't take the shot. So many fucking people. And those same people are the ones that just take the shot, man. I know. You know like that. the same people, the well, very same people, the same people made it. The same people, you know, they produced it, they sold it. This is the same people. Yeah, and and they came up with this whole phrase, uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated. Yeah. Right? So the, the, exactly the same people who were, who were having vaccine hesitancy the year previously came up with this phrase. And, and here's the part that's, that's shameful. It's one thing for a politician to use a phrase like that that's clearly cooked up, um, you know, with their consultants uh, in whatever – you know, evil political lab- laboratory. They 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 sit around and decide how they're going to you know do their messaging campaigns. But then for for you know an anchor person to get up and repeat it like it's his or her own thinking, that's just embarrassing. You know, yeah. like since when do we since uh, you know let uh, politicians write our material for us? I mean, it's 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 just it's shameful. It is, but I think it's just. The last death twitches of that business. I just think this is a sign of the times and that if you think about it, a decentralized source of news is really the only way we're going to trust it today. Something that is completely independent of a large corporation where they have a lot of vested interests a lot of vested interests in pushing a certain narrative. Those things, they're never going to be pure. Not anymore. I mean, whatever whatever the fuck they did, when they allowed pharmaceutical drug companies to advertise on television, and we're on, one of only two countries on planet Earth that allows that, they allowed the deepest roots of corruption and of influence to g- get in the way of all narratives, of mm. everything we say and do, mm. and the, the, the fucking sheer amount of money that's being generated by that is almost unstoppable. You could never cut all those roots. There's no way. It's, it's at this point. Yeah. It's it's and that amount of money is nothing to them. I nothing. mean look look at the amount of uh, the profits that companies like, you know, Moderna and yeah. Pfizer are making right now and you know like I'm, the, the for, to buy the ascent of basically all the networks, all all you have to do is, you know, send a tiny percentage of your quarterly profits to a handful of news networks and to them that's like manna from heaven i mean again the, the news business is so starved for revenue 
um, that they'll, they'll, you know, they'll bend to anybody, basically. Did you see that? I mean, I know Jimmy Dore covered it, but quite, quite a few other people have realized it now. The amount of money the that Bill Gates has spent on uh, influencing media. No, I, I, I didn't. It's somewhere in the neighborhood of three hundred million dollars. Jeez, he's donated to these various media organizations, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. which for sure has some sort of an impact on how they cover him. Right. Well, of course, yeah. And and look, the once upon a time we were. Uh, I've said it many times. We were trained to know uh, that, for instance, think tanks, right? Like uh, who they were, who was funding them, because think tanks are who get quoted uh, in, in the New York Times and the Washington Post, right? So uh, they're generating research that goes to journalists, and, it, and, and like sort of surreptitiously, that that ends up becoming what's covered. And so that's how, like, the Gates Foundation, for instance, will work its way into coverage. Uh, you know, it'll sponsor research in an area like education. That's one of the things I'm covering now. Um, and its research becomes, you know, uh, it, it gets it gets into the news that way. Um, but we were supposed to once have, uh, uh, you know, our ears up and be conscious of who was paying for all this this research. Where was that information coming from? And, you know, people don't really even think about it now. See if you can find that story, Jamie. I'm looking, I'm looking right now. I'm reading an article about Someone uh, last year actually was looking into it. Uh, here, I'll show you. Journalism's Gatekeepers is what it's called. Mm. Columbia a, Journalism CJR. Review. Mm-hmm. Is that a was respected? Yeah, publication? no. I mean, look, they've had their issues, but they're that's the top media criticism outlet, right? Okay, so this is last year. It says, I recently examined nearly 20,000 charitable grants the Gates Foundation made through the end of June and found that more than $250 million going towards journalism. Mm-hmm. Receipts included news operations like the BBC, NBC, Al Jazeera, ProPublica, National Journal, The Guardian, Univision, Medium, The Financial Times, The Atlantic, The Texas Tribune, Gannett, Washington Monthly, Le Monde. Le Monde, is that how you say it? Yeah, Le Monde. And uh, the Center for Investigative Reporting, charitable organizations affiliated with news outlets like BBC Media Action, the New York Times, Neediest Cases Fund, media companies such as the participant whose documentary, Waiting for Superman, uh, supports Gates' agenda on charter schools, journalistic organizations such as the Pulitzer Center, on crisis reporting, the National Press Foundation, and the International Center for Journalists, and a variety of other groups creating news content or working on journalism such as the Leo Burnett Company, an ad agency the Gates that Gates commissioned to create a news site to promote the success of aid groups. In some cases, recipients say... They distributed part of the funding as subgrants to other journalistic organizations, which makes it difficult to see the full picture of Gates funding into the fourth estate. Yeah, and, and, and as a reporter, you may not may or may not be aware of all the different ways that money will get in, you know, uh, work its way into the business. But unconsciously, it just sort of seeps in. Like you, right. you, you, and that's how it works. Like you, nobody comes and tells you, well, don't cover this. Um, well, maybe they do now, actually. Uh, or, or you know, take this approach to covering education. You, you what, what ends up happening is that you just kind of get a feel based on the reaction of your editor to whatever pitch uh, you're giving at the at the moment. Hey, would you you know would you be interested in the story about whether or not 
um, you know, this approach to uh, standardized testing worked, right? Uh, and if the editor says, yeah, that's interesting, maybe, right? Then you know, well, just never to broach that again, right? But if if it's with, you know, in the in the right ideological slant, um, they're going to be hot for it, right? Interesting. And, yeah, and that's how it works. That's how it works with everything. It works, you know, in, in with foreign policy. Uh, I mean, when I worked in Russia, um, if you sent a story, if you pitched a story to an American editor about how uh, the U.S.-based, the U.S.-funded reform effort was working, and there was a growing middle class in provincial Russia um, that was prospering, and people were now taking vacations to Ibiza and stuff like that, you could get anybody to buy that story. But if you came to them with a story about how actually um, you know the tran- the transformation of capitalism has been really slow. People have lost their health care. Um, there's an out- explosion of violent crime uh, and, and addiction, and people are more and more gravitating towards right wing politics. Uh, you know, in large part because of the the rapid changes that they weren't ready for. Um, you could not get that story sold, right? So what, what ended up happening when I was in Russia is they kept sending back all these these positive reports about what was happening. This was before Putin. Um, And Americans got this idea that things in Russia were going great, you know, Uh, and the the, the company was really prospering. In fact, you know, I was doing stories when I was there about how money didn't even exist in the the villages. Like the only people who would actually have cash in in most remote Russian villages would be pensioners because they would get it, um, you know, once a month from the mail system. Uh, I, I went to places where the people actually bought and sold things with uh, moonshine, like the Russian equivalent of moonshine, because that was like a unit of currency. Thing, wow. They were doing subsistence farming. I mean, it was completely fucked, life, life in rural Russia. But if you picked up the New York Times, what you read is, you know, the emerging middle class was doing great. <laughs> uh, you know, people have people have VCRs in, in Samara and stuff like that. And that's how it works. Like you, 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 you get a sense of what they want. You give it to them, and you know, over time, you just stop thinking about it. Uh, but it's 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 not a healthy way to do it. The idea that there's no currency at all, and they're just subsistence farming and trading and yeah. trading in moonshine—that's wild. Yeah, I, I actually did it myself. It was the, I, did, I did a story about this. I used to travel the country with this guy who was a believe it or not a professional clown. So <laughs> we would uh, we would do these things where we would we would get jobs in you know provincial Russia doing different things. You know whether it was bricklaying or you know working in um, you know agriculture that kind of stuff. And in one place we went to, um, you know, we we would do like a construction job, and we get paid in what they call samagon, which is uh, like moonshine. Was it uh, nasty? Uh, it, it works. I'll, I'll Megan Murphy gave me some shit from Mexico that it's how rough. I can still it's like nightmares. <laughs> <laughs> it's so rough. She drinks it all the time. I don't know what's wrong with her. But we open up the bottle. I was like, Jesus. Yeah. Oof. It's like getting hit with an oar when you drink this stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Have you ever seen Werner Herzog's uh, documentary, Happy People? No. Although I love Werner Herzog. But what was it about? It's about people living in rural Russia. Oh, really? It's life in the taiga. Happy wow. People. It's one of my favorite documentaries. It's really fascinating mm-hmm. because um, these people live just 
hunter, gatherer, fisherman, trapper existences. Mm. And uh, I, they, I believe they sell pelts and they'll use that for snowmobiles and tools and things like that. But essentially all of their food, all of their subsistence comes, this is it, comes entirely from hunting and trapping and they have no mental health problems. They're all unreasonably happy. <laughs> they, they're really like when you, you know, you're, you're getting translations of them, you know, it's all in subtitles, but they're talking about how happy they are. And they, they talk about all the things they love about this particular way of living. And, you know, and this is what a man needs to do. And this is what a trapper does. And this is what a hunter does. And this is what, and they're talking about it with this, this pride and this, I don't know, man, this like really unusual resolve. Like they found their niche. They don't have this desire to escape. Like they enjoy life. Right. And so he called it happy people. And, you know, he's doing the, uh, the uh, narration, which makes it interesting too. No, his narrations are always great. It's a year in the taiga is what it's called. Well, it it's makes, fucking great. Yeah, it's really that, good. That sounds awesome. Yeah, I mean, it make it make it makes sense that uh, you know whatever whatever it is we're doing um, that that if you can avoid <laughs> avoid having to have interaction <laughs> with that, uh, that would be. Uh, it sounds like it would be a great life. Do you feel an obligation? Because there's not that many of you. Um, I mean, I'm not trying to blow smoke up your ass, but I will. There's not that many of you out there. There's not that many people that I can say, like, I could send an article that you wrote and I can go, this is legit. You know, I'll send it to my friends, like, read this, this is crazy. Oh, thank you. There's not a lot of you out there, though. Like, if the government wanted to change the news, they just have to <laughs> whack you and Glenn Greenwald and a couple other people, and it would be a lot different out there. That's real. Yeah. As odd as that sounds, there's, there's not that many. Yeah, it's it's a weird feeling. I, I'm not, um, you know. Obviously, I've been doing this for a long time, but this current situation where it, the news is kind of split into three parts, right? There's right wing media, there's you know, hashtag resistance media, and then there's this independent thing where it's, you know it's people like you and me and Glenn and Crystal and Kyle and stuff like that. It it, it is small and an emergent, and um. It's it's a lot of attention. I think there's a lot of pressure on us to figure things out because we have we haven't figured things out. Like uh, Substack is really great for getting a couple of us paid uh, a good deal of money, but we haven't figured out how to do like um, in-depth investigative reporting. We haven't figured out how to pay for that. Right. Um, foreign reporting. How would you pay for that without crowdfunding it? And if you crowdfunded it, wouldn't everybody know what you were doing? Yeah, I, I, that would I mean, be a problem, right? It, it, it would be difficult. I think the the problem is that the, this model works because people really, really like the content, so they want a lot of it. Um, but you know, the job I used to do, I, you know, I would take eight, ten weeks to write a single story. Well, let me ask you this: mm -hmm. Say if you have a story that you would normally get funded for by a large uh, organization, how much money are we talking about? Like, say if you have a really important story. Mm -hmm. How much money are we talking about? How much would it cost? Like, say if you want to do a, a deep dive into the steel dossier. So it, it would depend on what it was. If it were, if it was like a book length thing, you know, I think you know how much book deals usually cost, right? Um, but that's there's profit on the end of that, right? There's millions. There can be if, if, if you're lucky. If, if you're, you're lucky, good, I mean, I think book. mostly, 
you know, the investigative reporters, you know, they'd, they'd be mostly happy with any kind of six-figure advance to do something like that. Uh, in the magazine business, if you were going to do a, a, a big whack at something like that, you know, 6,000 words, 10,000 words, you'd once upon a time, you would get, you know, uh, $15,000, $20,000 to do that because, you, you, you know, you needed to take a while. To, See, to do I that work. feel like if there's like real stories out there, there could be a fund that's dedicated to real stories, and in place of an editor, like who would have uh, control over the narrative, you could have a committee of people like yourself and Kyle and Crystal and Sagar, and and where you would have like a, a signal group chat. Mm-hmm. Where you talk about an issue, like, hey, there's a thing we want to do on this. You know, it's probably going to cost twenty thousand dollars to get all the pieces moving. You know, can we can we do something like that? And then, I think easily you could have a GoFundMe or a, you know whatever, any Patreon, something along those lines, where people just donate to this fund that goes towards journalism. And then at the end of the year, there could be an accounting of it so that everybody knows it's all legit and no, no one's siphoning money off of it. I don't think that's that hard. I, I, I think it would work. It would definitely work fi- financially. Um, it, you know, ProPublica sort of is based on that model. The, 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 there's, a, there's only a couple of problems. The pro- one is that there aren't that many people who know how to do the job that well left. Like, uh, that's terrifying. Yeah, no, it is. It's, it's, it's pretty scary. I mean, I think, um, you could have found, uh, a fair number of reporters who, who, who knew how to do hardcore investigative journalism, you know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, but, uh, the current generation has been raised on a different model that's based on being quick, uh, you know, getting a couple of quotes, putting something up fast and it's brief, and it's more of a take than it is a dig, uh, and so that mentality is is of just investigative uh, work is 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 disappearing. So you'd have the problem of finding people who can do it. The other problem is audiences don't necessarily love what we we call like eat, eat your vegetables journalism, right? <laughs> like there, there's there's some of it out there. There's plenty. Of, there, there are people who do good work, but they have difficulty getting people. To um, to follow it because people do love the the shit that's out there, right? They, yeah. they 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 eat up the culture war stuff. Yeah. Um, so those are those are two problems. I think uh, I've always approached it that part of the job is is a sales job. Look, you you have to get people interested in stuff that's important. You have to find a way to do it, whether you're using humor, whether you know you're using illustrations, it doesn't matter whether you use fiction writing narrative techniques to get people hooked on something. Um, you know, that's that's part of the job, I think. Uh, and and you have to do the investigative stuff. So it's 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 a tough thing. It takes a while to develop all those skills and they're not teaching um, kids in journalism to do that as much anymore. Do you think that with the rise of independent journalists, do you think that it's possible that that might open up and people might look at that as a viable career path and they might say hey this is actually it's actually coming back i would hope so i mean if if the money's there it's the greatest job in the world i mean like you know this this job has taken me all over the planet i've gotten to meet 
every conceivable kind of person uh, on earth, everyone from presidential candidates to professional athletes to people in prison to, you know, everywhere. And you can go anywhere doing journalism. Um, and you you get to play detective sometimes, right? Which it's it's a really cool thing. You got to you got to do the work of, you know, coming to a situation and figuring out who did what, and that's mentally and intellectually stimulating. It's it's a it's a great great job. Um, but people have been, um, I think they've been uh, turned off to it because this new version of the, of the job is much more like professional flattery. It's much more political. Uh, they're, they're, they're training kids to be like courtiers, basically. And they, the people who come out of journalism schools now, they, they want to be close to power. Like they, the, that, that's the attraction for them, is, is the, the idea of being the person who gets to sit next to a Hillary Clinton aide at a bar um, you know, at the end of a day and, you know, oh, I know this person, I, or I hang out at a party with this person. Like mm. that, instead of you know, going around the world or breaking a big story, like that, that, that's what it is. And uh, I, I think it's unfortunate because it's a cool job. It is. A, it's not just a cool job. It's a cool job with romantic roots. Absolutely. You know? Yeah. I mean, think about how many incredible stories have been broken and, you know, Woodward and Bernstein, how many how people look at these people, you know? Yeah. Think think of the people who've, who've been journalists, yeah. who, who've done such incredible things. You know, everybody from like Ida Tarbell to Mark Twain to um, Hunter e- Thompson, Hunter Thompson, e- Evelyn Waugh. Like, you know, yeah. it, it's it's a great place for for if you if you want to be a writer. I mean, that, that that's how I got into it, because I, I, I wanted to be a writer. Um, but if you wanted to, if you want to be a great investigator, uh, you know, you can do uh, that's a way into it, too. Um you know, the, the, there's the whole tradition of what we what we call participatory journalism, where you do something and then you and then you write about it. Mm. Um, you know, the George Plimpton was famous, right, for for you know uh, playing professional football, right, the Paper Lion story. Uh, but you know, I, I've done some of that. You know, like doing you know work in Russia or uh, you know going undercover. I lived in a church in Texas uh, for a while. Did you really? Yeah, yeah. Actually, the the John Hagee. Uh, a church in San Antonio. Um, I sort of joined that church and wrote a, wrote a, about my experiences what there. What were you doing there? Um, so it was like an apocalyptic church. It's one of those <laughs> churches that sort of believes the end of the world is coming. Did they have a date? Um, they didn't have a date, uh, but they had they had all these crazy. Like we had a retreat. Um, where they taught taught us to vomit our demons out into a paper bag, uh, <laughs> so we we all got together and like we had to uh, to do that. So I had to pretend to be this like confused, spiritually confused person. Mm. I feel kind of guilty about it in retrospect. It was kind of I'm not so sure. Well, about isn't it. everybody a little spiritually confused? We all are. Yeah, yeah I so. guess so. But it's you know it's it. It's a fun job. I mean, it's it's uh, and and I think it's really really necessary too when done right. I, I was just reading something. They didn't have serpents, did they? Did they use serpents? They, they didn't. No, that's like the Pentecostal thing, right, I think. Right, right, yeah, right, right. Yeah, They're yeah. the ones who speak Snake in handlers. tongues, too, right? Well, we did do that. Really? Yes. Oh, Yeah, yeah. I wasn't so good at that. <laughs> uh, it all sounds the same. <laughs> it, uh, it all goes into this... It all sounds like a fake language. Like, no one does it well. No one does it where it sounds like, wow, that sounds like... Do you... Um, what is that... Um, Oh God! There's a, a manuscript 
that they think is fake and it's been around forever. The Protocols of the Elders of Zion? No, 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 no. The Voynich, what is it called? Mm, the something, the Voynich, is man. The Voynich manuscript? That's it. 39 the codes or something? Yes. There's this ancient book and they don't know how old it is. How old do they think it is? So they're thinking before it was like a long lost language. Uh-huh, and as time's gone on, now they're kind of thinking it's not a language at all. It's like someone just it's made just up gibberish? a language. Yeah. Oh, they made it up? But it's really good. So it's, it's confusing people. <laughs> See if you can pull up some images of it. So this, it's got drawings and this language oh, that they thought, yeah, it's, it's really interesting. It's old as fuck. But like, look at how all the letters are written. It's all beautiful, and no one knows what the fuck it says. They have no idea. <laughs> and there's a lot of theories, but for the longest time, they were trying to decipher it. And I think, I, I, I might be speaking out of tune here because they might have changed, but I think they decided somewhere along the line that it's not really a language, that someone just made up a fake language. So, so I'm, I'm assuming that they had like uh, linguists and code breakers take a crack at yes. it and they just yeah. couldn't, right? They can't. It's early 15th century. So somewhere in the early 1400s, somebody – so r- clear that. Was the uh, manuscript decoded? I don't think it has been, right? 2019, the manuscript was propelled back of the headlines once again when an academic made the explosive claim that he had success, succeeded where everyone had failed and successfully decoded the mysterious text. I think that's horseshit, though. I don't think that's true. If, if somebody 500 years ago made this beautiful thing but made it complete gibberish just to fuck with us in the future, that's kind of amazing. <laughs> like, I, right, I, like, I, I really respect that. Yeah, if that's what they did. I don't know what they did. Yeah, that's funny. I, I think they think that somebody might have made it to sell to someone. Like someone ha- might have made it in the early 1400s to sell as like some ancient text. It currently consists of around 240 pages. There's evidence that additional pages are missing. Some pages uh, are foldable sheets of varying size. Most of the pages have fantastical illustrations or diagrams, some crudely colored with sections of the manuscript showing people fictitious plants, hmm. astrological symbols, etc. The text is written from left to right. The manuscript was named after Wilfred Voynich, a Polish book dealer who per- purchased it in 1912. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think that anyone has translated it. There was so much fuckery back then. Oh, yeah. There was, right? That's yeah. hilarious. That and reminds was, me of the... Uh, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, the, the, like, the earliest books. Well, I was reading something about some of the earliest... Somebody brought it up, and then I read something... Somebody, I think somebody brought it up on this podcast. Yeah, I, that's, I remember reading through this, and I thought we had come to an answer, but I'm, I don't remember it, and I'm not finding it. The, the answer like, whether or not it's legit? Yeah, like, even I thought they found out what some of the stuff was saying, and it was just, like, nonsense, or... Yeah, I don't know if that's true. I think yeah, there's, I it's really under debate. But the earliest books, the real successful ones, were about like how to spot witches. Hmm. Like everybody thinks like, oh, well, once they started printing books, that's when people started learning things. Like, no. <laughs> no. No, it's kind of like today. Right. Yeah. You know? do, there's, a lot, there's a lot of witch hunting going on today. Like, all, like if you think of like if, if YouTube was dominated by QAnon, <laughs> QAnon theories, that was like ancient publishing. Yeah, amazing. First started writing books because I never even thought of that. I forget who brought that up. Someone brought that up on the show, that the earliest books were about witches. 
And and I was like, what? And they go, yeah, that was the most successful books at the time. Once they started printing books, like how to spot witches. Right, right. <laughs> you talked about it on the ninth episode. But who was it that the ninth episode ever? Yeah. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> wow. Wow. With whom? My memory's gone. My memory is like a hard drive that's like a one gigabyte hard drive, but I'm trying to stuff 18 gigs of information in there. It just spills over. Right. And then someone will bring something. I'll go, oh, yeah. Oh, now I remember that. Okay, I found the folder. And then I'll, you know. Yeah, no, I, for, for me, I think I'm just actually, uh, it's shrinking in size, that uh, that, that hard drive. Yeah, well, yeah. it's it's definitely not working that good. <laughs> um, but this Voynich manuscript, uh, I forget what my point was. It's uh, just... It reminds me of the... Um, remember the amazing story about the Zodiac Code? Yes. Uh, when <laughs> they published it, and like the NSA, the CIA, uh, and the FBI, like their cryptographers couldn't crack it, but then this couple in like, uh, Sausalito were just like sitting at their breakfast table, and, and, and they were the ones who figured it out. Oh, is that true? Yeah, it really? is true. Yeah, it's, a, it's, a, it's in the original um, Zodiac books, the... the 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 cartoonist Robert Gray Smith. We were uh, going somewhere with this when I got to the Voynich manuscript. What the hell were we talking about right before that? It just there was a point. Don't media remember. business professional standards. Oh. Talking in tongues. Talk. Oh, speaking that's in tongues. Right. That's yeah. right. That's mm-hmm. right. So you, we you were we were just talking about gibberish. Um, that fake languages. Mm-hmm. That fake languages all sound the same. They all sound. Yeah. Nobody does it where it sounds like. Wow, that sounds like a good fake language. No, it's it's in, it's incredibly unconvincing. Except, that, but it was very hard for me to do. I've I've found like a that that was the hardest hardest part of the gig. Didn't uh, J.R.R. Tolkien write a whole fake language to go along with the Lord of the Rings? Oh, like Hobbitish or something I like that. I think he did. Or Elvish. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think he did write something, some Elvish language. I think he wrote a fake language to go along with his books. So did um, Anthony Burgess. Well, he just basically took Russian words and made them into slang for Clockwork Orange. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, he had his his own sort of slang slang language. That's a cool thing to do, you know. Did this uh, church that you did, were they uh, some of the people that did the pray the gay away stuff? Um, so there, there was a little bit of that, uh, <laughs> they didn't, they didn't do conversion therapy exactly, uh, but they, they definitely counseled people who were, uh, uh, who were in that situation. Let's put it that way. Um, I, I was, I, I thought about doing one of those, but then, uh, where I would actually join one of those retreats, um, and see how they, they went about trying to convert people. But, um, yeah, that never worked out. There was someone who was a famous politician and their husband was involved in one of those things. I'm trying to remember who it was. But her, her, no, no, no. It was a a female politician and the husband seemed, he seemed gay and he was involved. That's a weird thing to say, but you know, some people do seem gay. I, you know, it's it's like you risk being criticized and being called a bigot for saying that. But if someone's talking like this, it's very <laughs> rare that's a straight person, right? Right. Yeah. 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 For whatever reason, this is not a. This is in no way a judgment against gay people. But this guy was doing pray the gay away stuff, and someone did some investigative reporting and did something, and it was like this guy like clearly has a heart on, and he's like behind me hugging me. 
and, and telling me that, you know, Jesus does not want him to be gay and that we're all going to work through this. And he, he's like, the whole thing was like uber bizarre. That's crazy. It's amazing that the, that, that whole conversion therapy thing was, was such a big deal. Like even 10, 15 years ago, yeah. there've been, you know, a lot of changes in, in, since then. Well, changes in acceptance, acceptance hopefully, yeah. but also changes in an understanding of homosexuality. That it's this is not a choice. It's like this right. I, the idea that it is a choice is nonsense. Right. And, right. And we although they they're now changing the, the the thinking on that. Really? Well, I mean that's I, I, not to wade into an area that's completely radioactive, but you know they're the, too late. It's the <laughs> you know the, the trans issue the. The whole idea that you, you, you the, something like that is determined by biology runs a little bit counter to to current thinking. Oh, okay. So, well, Gender trans fluidity. is very different, though, right? Yeah. The the reason why trans is different because there are trans people, right, that start off as biological males and they identify with being a female but they've had children with females and they've had relationships with females and then as they transition they remain attracted to females right this is very common yeah. so i don't think it's quite the same as gay it's it's very different in that it's whatever it is in the human mind that makes you identify with another gender it seems to have nothing to do with your sexual preference hmm okay yeah I know absolutely nothing about it, so I, I know I, I, enough I about it. Yeah. Well, I, I knew almost nothing about it until I got like uh, attacked for attacking a, um, a female MMA fighter who used to be male for thirty years and then wasn't telling anybody that she used to be male and transitioned and fought two different times against females that thought she was a biological female and beat the fuck out of them. I right. mean, like, horrendous beatings. Broke this lady's skull. Like, literally fractured her face. It was scary stuff. And the, when you watch the fights, it, the fights looked like a guy beating up a woman. Mm -hmm. It wasn't like someone who's particularly skillful. It was just wrong. It was right. Just and it was at a very low level of MMA. Like... If you if you saw like at, at high levels when someone has like the skills to protect themselves from someone who's the same size as them but physically superior, then you would have less consequences because they just know how to protect themselves better. But these these women weren't that skillful, so the strength and the the physical power was a huge factor. Right. And I was fucking furious because it was like this is crazy mm. and. In criticizing it and and being like very very vocal about it, then I started having to like start doing research on this. Like what like why are people reacting this way? Like what is actually going on here? It, wasn't that one of the reasons they they wanted Bernie to disavow you? Yes. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. And what's what's amazing about this is that um, it's again it goes back to that same kind of instinct, you know, behind the lab leak theory process, which is. We've decided something, right? We're not yeah. going to discuss it anymore. Exactly. So if you discuss it, uh, you you are you are in the bad zone, right? Uh, and um, you're not even allowed to bring it up. Not even allowed to bring it up. And and so there, there are just so many of these places in the kind of cultural landscape that are that are just you know no fly zones for for 
talking about things. Well, Abigail Schreier is experiencing that in, you know, like the most hateful and aggressive way with uh, her book. Uh, I believe it's called Irreversible Damage. Right. Which is all about rapid onset gender dysphoria that seems to be happening to a lot of young girls. And they're trying to figure out what is going on when the percentage of people who identify as trans that are young girls is up several thousand percent. Right. Which is crazy. Yeah. Like what is what's happening? Yeah, obvi- obviously there there are people who don't think that's happening um, and, and think that that uh, uh, rapid onset gender dysphoria isn't a thing. I, I interviewed um, uh, Abigail because she she also had a problem with the internet platforms, uh, you know. I think it was with Amazon, right? That, yes. Yeah. Um, and again, that's that whole phenomenon of okay, it's controversial. Well, that used to be part of what having a First Amendment was all about. You know, we we talk about this stuff. The right. whole the whole point of having it is is to protect discussions around things that are difficult. Yes. Right? Like we don't have it so that we can have obvious conversations. Right. Um and so if you think she's wrong, uh you know, let's talk about it. Right. right? Don't Go to an internet platform and make it impo- you know, and and shut it down at the source and and make it impossible for somebody to, to have the discussion. What well, used to be the right that everybody was terrified of that was going to burn books, right? And it was based on religion. So now the left is doing it, and it's based on religion. Also, it's just a non-defined religion. Right. It's a religion of wokeness. Like you have to have these parameters that you operate under, and as soon as you step outside of those parameters, you're supposed to be shut down and deplatformed, which is the the term. Right. And it's essentially the same thing. You're you're calling for a book burning. Right. You're calling for a ban. Yeah. And you're calling for a ban on someone who, very some respected, intelligent people, agree with her, have uh, agreed with some of the things she said, have disagreed with some of the other things that she said, have discussed these things, and realize. That there is an issue here where people are malleable. This is the concept, right? The concept is that there is some sort of social acceptance and embracing of people who are trans and that this could be a problem with some people who are easily influenced and are maybe socially awkward or maybe even on the spectrum. And then some someone comes along and says, you feel weird because you're really trans. And if you give that person testosterone, one of the things that happens with the administration of testosterone in, in, in people, particularly in girls, is there's a euphoria that comes with it. There's a sense of well-being. There's a, a, you get confidence. And they might start thinking, this is what has been wrong with me all this time. Now, these are not my words. These are not my opinions. This is just explaining what this phenomenon supposedly how you can define it, and it, and I've done zero research, so I just want to be real clear about that. I yeah. don't know if that's actually what's going on. The, the yeah, the, so, so the the assertion is that uh, you have people in clusters, uh, you know, social clusters, who are you know they, they call it the social contagion yes. uh, phenomenon, and there would be other factors too, like therapeutic attention is also something that. Uh, you know, some people may think is is a positive, right? Kids kids might uh, experience um, they might feel better about life uh, because they're getting more attention from clinicians or from yes. teachers, something like that. 
but you have to test that, right? Like that's the, the right. whole the whole point is like it's, we're not deciding at the outset whether this is right or wrong. It's that the way science works is well, let's let's do a study about that, figure out what's actually happening, um, and instead, it's like if you have the con- having the conversation is now is now dangerous, is perilous, right? Which is crazy to me. Like one of the reasons I became kind of politically liberal in the first place is because we didn't have those uh, prohibitions. Uh, you know, the the comedians said all the forbidden things. The intellectuals weren't afraid to have the scary discussions. Um, I remember the the first thing I liked about Noam Chomsky was that was that he stood up for the speech rights of some crazy Holocaust denier, right? Mm. Um, because the the whole idea was, uh, you know, you had you had to have dialogue uh, and fight for it. Um, and what we're doing now, we we're just we're, we have this atmosphere where people don't want to. They're, they're they're just sort of deeply interested in in scaring people away from certain topics, yes. uh, which I I don't understand. Well, a great example of that is the ACLU. The ACLU, when it first started, they defended Nazis. They mm. fe- defended Nazis' right to speak, not defended their position as being accurate, but defended Nazis' right to speak because they said that if you don't, if if you believe in free speech, you believe in all speech, and even if it's wrong. Even if it's inaccurate, you have to defend free speech. Now, now they are like one of the wokest organizations that's out there. They 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 fly by this doctrine, and you know their their positions on things are entirely ideologically driven. Yeah, there was a great documentary called uh, "Mighty Ira" that's done by Fire. You know the the. Um, and they profile Ira Glasser, who was the head of the ACLU for a long time, and it goes into the whole mechanics of. Um, what the decision uh, was to support uh, the the Nazis in Skokie. And it was specifically based on the idea that all these ACLU people had fought in the uh, civil rights uh, era. Like they, had, they had campaigned for civil rights. And their whole argument was if you deny, if you let the town of Skokie decide who can and cannot march um, in their town, then you're going to have some southern town the next day uh, deciding – that a black organization or the NAACP can't march there, right? Are, are we are we going to make a million different authorities who are going to decide who gets to speak and who doesn't? And that's mm. a very compelling argument, it's right? Very compelling. And yeah. and it was deeply thought out, and they were they were they were really really. Um, you know, they took it very seriously in, uh, from an intellectual level. Like, um, we know how offensive this is to people. They, they, they thought about how, what it would mean to the residents of Skokie, many of whom were, were Holocaust survivors, what it would mean for them to see those marchers go past their, their houses. They understood how, how uh, you know, if, if anything is harm, if any kind of speech is harm, that is it, Right. But still, you know that this is a foundational idea in the United States: is that we 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 defend this because it's it's part of our identity, and we're lose. I think we're losing touch with why we have those ideas, you know, right? And, and why it's so important to debate these ideas, and that you know when people are confused, they can see a better argument. They can see someone who eloquently spells out why these Nazis are wrong. And then you go, okay, now I have a framework. Now I understand. 
Like if someone doesn't know why they're wrong, like maybe someone's uneducated, maybe someone grew up around people that were racists or Nazis, and then they get this compelling explanation of everything. And now you wouldn't have had that if you didn't have the Nazis. Like you kind of need the shitheads and the bad people of the world so that you can say, here's why they're wrong. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, it, it gets messy. And in the age of social media, that's where it's weird because these shitheads never really had a platform before where they can get on these, uh, whatever platform social media allows them and they can develop massive followings saying crazy shit. Like, and, but that's still the same. We have to realize that even though it's new and it's uncomfortable and you're seeing these numbers and, pe you know, people are being indoctrinated into these ideas, what's important is to have a compelling argument against it. Yeah. And to have that and to say, hey, this is why these people are wrong. Look, here's, here's the, the most eloquent, thought out, articulate argument against that. And then where reasonable people are allowed to look at these two things and go, well, clearly this, these people over here are correct. And clearly I see why these people are so fucked up and this is what's wrong. Yeah. Uh, doing it the other way, just saying, okay, we're, we're not going to let you see that idea. Um, we're going to make sure that uh, it comes or it comes affixed with a warning label or it's, uh, we're going to make sure that person does not appear on this internet platform. You know, you I mean you know what the Streisand effect is, right? Yes. It, it's it's so explain a, that to people the whole story behind that. Yeah, I don't remember funny. exactly what it's happened. It's a house. It, she it, had a house in yeah. Malibu, and it was this big, beautiful house. And they took photos of it from the air, and uh, she got pissed, and she demanded it be taken down off the internet. And when she did that, everybody's like, "What house is that?" And right. then it became way more popular. And then everybody wanted to know where Barbara Streisand's house was, and that became the Streisand effect. She was operating under this delusion that we were living in 1950 when you can get the newspaper to like take something down and that would be it. That'd be the end of it. But in the age of the internet, it has the opposite effect intended. And, and this and this gets back to what we were saying at the very beginning, like this this idea that people have to understand that not every there isn't a solution to everything. Like right. And I, I think internet speech is the classic example of where people. Think there must be something we can do, some thing, step that we can take to make sure that these kinds of thinkers don't exist anymore. And there isn't. Like there, it's logistically impossible for a company like Facebook or Google uh, or Twitter to scan individually each piece of content. It's being created at too fast a rate. The only way to do it. Is to is to have a better argument and win on on, on that level culturally. Yeah. Um, and they they think that there's some kind of mecha sorry mechanical solution to this, um, and there isn't. There's yeah. not. And and you have to be comfortable with that. Like that's part of again that's part of what it being a person is is you have to deal with some things that are just you know disturbing. Yeah. Uh, and, and you have to have messy conversations. Mm -hmm. And you know and you're going to have to explain to your children what's going on here and who these people are. Great, here's, uh, this is a, related. Do you guys, are you aware of this new hate group march that was walking where all these guys were walking with American flags? I made it get back in the truck. That what's thing. that? They were like yes, they all jumped in the back of a U-Haul truck together. Yeah. Yeah. There has never been a thing that I've ever seen where almost immediately I was like, those are feds. 
uh, oh, did this I happen? Think, I, I immediately, like, that's fake. Like, um, my immediate feeling. I looked at them. First of all, these guys are too slim. I'm looking at these guys. <laughs> they're all in shape. They're all thin. They're, they're, they're uniformly marching with flags. I'm like, there's no way these fucking idiots would be this organized. Then, someone did a deep dive on Twitter. I wish I could remember who. But someone did a deep dive on Twitter and found out that the account in which this whole thing went viral is a completely fake account that has no followers and was started about a month ago with an AI-generated face. It's a fake face as like the profile picture. Hmm. It's one of those pictures they take a bunch of people's faces and they smush it and make this one lady. And then she had a picture of a dog in like one of her Facebook posts. But there's no engagement. There's no interaction. The, the entire account is only a month old. And her post on this somehow or another went viral. And this is what started the sharing of it. But if you look at these people walking down the street with their masks on, all dressed in black, all wearing like essentially a uniform, all holding the same size American flag. Hmm. And then eventually they all jumped into the back of a U-Haul and were carted off at the end of this stupid fucking march. But if you watch this, I'm like, what are you guys doing? Was this supposed to be some, like, right-wing exactly. QAnon hate group exactly. type thing? Exactly. And they call themselves the Patriot something or another. Patriot Front. Patriot Front. Like, I, you need to a, see this. Can we see yeah, a picture? We need to see the video. We need to see the video because uh, when you see them marching, you look at them marching, you go, why are these guys in such good shape? <laughs> you, idiots are usually fat. Like, there's some <laughs> fatness to them. Like, they don't have discipline, right? Right. This is not, this is not, these aren't wise folks that are eating correctly. And I mean, Americans are most usually yes. fat. Yeah. This is uniformly thin and fit looking with the same... <laughs> Outfits on the same flags like you're telling me the FBI didn't know about these people, right? You you're telling me the FBI is not monitoring fringe groups and they're they, they were not aware these people were this fucking organized out of nowhere They pop out with the same size flags and the same outfit on goose stepping They're walking not goose stepping, but you know walking right. in this at the same pace in the in a, a fucking orderly line Like who's who organized this? This is them on their bus I was trying to. I thought this was going to turn into the video of them walking. See the video of them walking. Is that the video well, of them it's walking? Like these are linking uh, to blog posts, so it's not going to. God, there's got to be a video of them walking. I know. I watched it. So here's it. Uninformed, uniformed white nationalist group marches on Lincoln Memorial. CNN's all in. They're like, we're all in on this. Come on, show us. Look at these guys. Look at these guys. Where's the fat people? <laughs> How come they're all wearing the same clothes? Do that again. What the fuck is this? Is that have you ever seen anything that looks more like feds? Tell me that doesn't look like feds. Right? It's like the 101st Airborne. Bro, look like at this. These guys are all runners. These guys look like they just got out of buds. I mean, look, the they, fuck out of here. They could be real. Right. They could be they real. Could, they could be real. Listen, Matt Taibbi, I'm an unreliable source, and I'm a comedian. <laughs> but looking at that, I'm calling bullshit. Give me that well, again. Give me that again. Uh, yeah, okay. Oh, well, this gets back to like the, the, the Oklahoma Ivermectin story where-, where you, you, Right, where you they're have, all wearing winter, winter coats. Yeah, like you, yeah. you know- Look at this. The fuck out of here. How do they all have like uniformed outfits on? They have the same color pants. For the most part, very little variation. They have tan or brown pants, dark blue shirts with the fucking stupid flag on it. This asshole's got a drum! Back that up! Look at the fucking drum! 
Bitch, are you Paul Revere? It's, what the fuck are you doing with that drum? He's walking around with a band drum. It's like white a high power drum band. line. This is so stupid, it hurts my feelings. <laughs> they all have flags? Keep that up there. Well, I was we trying need... to find, there's videos from them from like July. But says. I'd like to see that again. So you know what's so interesting so about stupid. this, though? Is that, again... Oh, okay. I just need to see it. Go ahead. Tell me. So... Look at this. I mean, maybe they're real. Could maybe be, they're real. Could, could be, be real. But, but I'm calling bullshit. They have the same fucking size flags, the same white coloring on their face, the same tan hats on. Get the fuck out of here. And why are they wearing masks, by the way? Because like, they're cowards. Right. Or they're feds. Yeah. <laughs> like, right? Do yeah, you, so. Do, do your instinct when you see that. Well, my, I'm, I mean, I'm suspicious of everything. Uh, <laughs> I, I certainly wouldn't put that up and be like chilling scene, like you know, without right. looking into it a little bit, you know. Yeah. Uh, but again, back in the day, the the it was the left that July Fourth. So they've been doing this for a while. Yeah. Oh, so the, white, the, they white like supremacist group marches through the heart of Philadelphia. Oh, I remember this from Philadelphia. And look, the same thing. Like they have the same shields. The this is same like Irish line dancing. God, or like it's so that. weird. You think it's real? If it I is mean, real, it could be. It's just weird. They seem like feds to me. They're too. They're too fit. But I know that doesn't mean that racists can't exercise. I know racists exercise. Folks, relax. But I'm just saying when you're they looking have at that, 42 chapters, including Pennsylvania, New Jersey. They're linked to a group called Vanguard America, which gained infamy after the Charlottesville, Virginia event. They recruit on college campuses with flyers, conduct flash protests, and even commit acts of vandalism. Jesus. Could be. I mean, who knows? Uh, there's enough assholes on America for it to be possible. Just not, I don't, I don't know if they're all, they would all be thin like that. Uh, what but, was the thing recently where they found out that a great percentage of the people. The Michigan thing. Yes. Explain that. These are the people that were trying to kidnap the, the governor. The kid, Explain that. Kid, I, I don't know. I didn't cover the story, but basically it was a, uh, an attempt to. Uh, to cover, uh, kidnapped uh, Governor Whitmer, right? Yeah. Uh, and they found out that a high percentage of the people involved were F FBI informants. <laughs> Which, again, back in the day, would not have been surprising to people on the left because this is part of, like, the, you know, what you we were taught back in the, when they had COINTELPRO. Yes. And FBI informants were, no, you know... It, it was notorious in the 60s and 70s, this idea of having, you know, agents provocateurs in, in the crowd, people who were throwing things at, at soldiers who were coming back from Vietnam uh, to, to discredit the anti-war crowd, right? Like uh, the assassination of Fred Hampton, the infiltration of the Black Panthers, like, you know, all this stuff. It was understood that the FBI did this stuff or, or, or that different law enforcement agencies did this stuff. Now suddenly, people on the left disbelieve instantly that this happens. They they are reluctant to to accept it. Now, again, you have to prove it in each case. Yes. Right. So you can't you you can't just you know you can't just assert that uh, this or that person is a is a federal agent. But you should have some healthy skepticism about each one of these things. You know, and 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 especially now. With uh, the way media and the internet works, and virality. Oops, sorry. Is that you? Yeah, that is me. I'm sorry. Jamie, uh, pull. Go ahead, please go. No, this, it, I just sent Jamie this. 
<laughs> it's the great, it's the greatest meme. It's they're all dressed up like Spider Man, and all of them says "fed, fed, fed," another "fed," and then one says some autistic fuck, some poor guy that they trick into doing something. You know that was the suspicion amongst the conspiracy theorists about the Boston bombing, right? That they had radicalized those brothers and actually talked them into committing some sort of a, a terrorist act. Right. Right. Yeah. And and. Right. Yeah. Again, you, you have to look at it case by case, but it definitely happens. It definitely happens. It happened yeah. in Dallas. That one guy that they got, I believe he's from Egypt. He was 19 years old, and they talked him into uh, using a cell phone to detonate a bomb that they had provided him that was not really a bomb. And when he used that cell phone to detonate the bomb, then they arrested him. So they set him up, radicalized him, brought him in, told him, you know, you're going to do this thing. It's going to be amazing. You're, you're going to be awesome. So we were all up in arms about this when the first war on terror happened because we knew shit like this was going on, whether whether it was, um, you know, inform informants pushing people to do things they didn't want to do or creating terror watch lists, uh, no-fly lists, um, putting people under illegal surveillance, illegally detaining them. We were, we were all concerned about this. You know, it, it, uh, at least liberals were. Yeah. Uh, I, and, and suddenly now that they're doing this other kind of war on terror, this domestic war on terror, um, nobody cares. It's, it, it's as if those concerns no longer exist. Well, they found a loophole. They found a way to sneak it in in, in an acceptable, a socially acceptable way. Right, exactly. And that's kudos to the to the authorities <laughs> for coming up with it because it's brilliant. It's it is as a marketing, yeah. you know, and especially Trump is is obviously a huge part of this whole thing. Um, you know, selling to America the idea because you, you think about it before Trump, think about how unpopular the intelligence services were in 2014 2015 True. after the snowden revelations yes. you know you talked to snowden right he was one of the one of the most famous people in the world and he you know he we got the heads of the intelligence agencies lying to congress openly getting away with it people were they were furious right yeah uh and then all of a sudden in a heartbeat those exact same people the, the people we were, everybody was so mad at suddenly became heroes because they were the ones in the front lines, you know, battling Donald Trump. Right. Uh, and, and battling it, him by lying about him. By, by lying, you know, by lying about him, incidentally. Yeah. yeah right. Like yeah. that, like that, that, that was, that was fascinating. Like Comey became a hero. Co Comey, John Brennan. Yeah. Michael But then Hayden. when you look at what those guys actually did, you're like, holy shit. Like, you're not supposed to do that. Of course not. Yeah, and and it, this is all coming out now. I mean, I I was one of the few. Like Glenn was another one. Like we, there were a, there was a small circle of journalists at the time that you know the, in the early years of Trump, who were just like something about this just doesn't smell right. Like it, the, the the story just feels wrong. Uh, intelligence sources, especially anonymous ones, are inherently untrustworthy. Uh, and yet suddenly American audiences are trusting them en masse and they shouldn't, you know, uh, and that's no different from it's ever been. We, sh we, we shouldn't have trusted them in, when, when the WMD thing happened. Um, and, you know, people like Glenn and myself pointed that out then. Uh, 
and we shouldn't trust them now, you know? And but they they people were so worked up about Donald Trump that suddenly they were re- ready to jump in bed with people like John Brennan and Comey and Clapper and all these guys. Like these, these are like horrible people. It's so crazy, but one thing that governments have been our government in particular has been really good at is capitalizing on a state of chaos and using it to their advantage and this is something that happened post 9-11 with the patriot act and the patriot act 2 which i believe the patriot act has never been used to arrest a terrorist find out i wouldn't know that find out that's true um but it has been used to arrest many drug dealers and to use on people who were, you know, air quotes, enemies. Um, but when chaos happens and they realize that there's some opportunity, they take advantage of opportunities. It's always been a part of history. People have always done that. Well, that seems like what's happening now. And that seems like something that we should be concerned about. Absolutely. Look, look, it, it was transparently what they were doing after 9-11. Uh, Everybody should be scared to death. Therefore, we need additional powers to do yeah. A through Z, right? Yes, like, yes. and it's it was nuts the stuff they, they you know the FISA Enhancements Act and you know the Patriot Act, the, the no fly list, the, the watch list, all this stuff, the, uh, the FBI's national security letters. You know this this thing where they would the FBI sends a letter to a company, tells them that they they. Um, are are barred from telling their customers that they the, that they're divulging their information to the FBI. They sent out tens of thousands of those letters. There was an IG report about that. And actually, there were a bunch of IG reports about that. Um, and this whole regime of surveillance, you know, uh, just got approved willy nilly because the public was scared. People were freaked out. Yes. You know, they, they 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 didn't want it to happen again. So they they just said, okay, go ahead. We trust you. Right, and of course they they massively abused these programs. Um, you know, they they started to do things that were uh, that were really crazy, like you know, the, the, using the enhanced secret surveillance tools uh, as uh, as evidence in criminal cases, but it would be hidden. In other words, like if you you'd be charged with a drug crime, right? Uh, and if you ask for discovery, they would give you all the documents that they had to give you, uh, but they wouldn't let you know that maybe you were under surveillance or there, there was a FISA warrant. You've been caught uh, in some other way. They don't have to disclose that stuff. They don't have to disclose the national security letter stuff. And so they, it, it became like this separate legal system, and Americans just got used to it. And and then when Trump happened, they were so afraid of him. And all the uh, all the possibilities that came with that 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 now they're now they're willing to let all kinds of new tools be used on them. And yeah, it's just cr- it's crazy that they're not no, nobody's more worried about it. Well, when I heard Joe Biden say that the biggest threat to this country is white supremacy, I was like, okay, what what's going on here? Like, what are they doing? Like, what are they doing? Because look, Charlottesville was horrific, right? And when that guy ran over a bunch of people with his car in Charlottesville, like it, it opened up the door to people saying, like, hey, this is genuinely horrible. It is scary. It is scary. Mm-hmm. But then they swoop in and say, this is the number one problem in this country. Right. Like, which is crazy to say. Because it's a, a small percentage of people that are out of their fucking mind that generally don't have much of an impact on our culture. 
Right. But when the president says that white supremacy is the biggest problem that we face, I immediately go, who told you to say that? What are you doing? What's pl- what are you planning? Like, right. Wh- like, what's going on here? Like, how many people, like, clearly, clearly, there's a lot of people that were involved in January 6th that were out of their fucking mind and really did think that they were going to take over the government. Right. They really did think that Donald Trump was truly the president, and they were queuing on all the way, and they really thought that... But clearly, there were some feds involved in that. They were manipulating those people. Clearly. If you, I don't know if you've seen that one guy. We've highlighted him on the show. There's this one guy that was telling people over and over again, they got to go in that building. Huh. I'm telling you right now, we got to get in there. And that guy's never faced any charges. And they know his name. And, they, and it's like a real fucking shadowy sort of a situation. Like, what's going on here? Right. Because you know, if the government knew that something was going on like that, for sure they would infiltrate. For sure, they've infiltrated all these wacky groups. That's just part of their job. They mm-hmm. have to to kind of find out how dangerous they are. Would, I mean, it's part of their job. It would be a news story if they weren't actually right. right. right? They would be irresponsible. Right. Yeah. Right. They would. Yeah. They would be incompetent. So it's it is their job. Now, once they're in there, the question is, how much manipulation are they allowed to do before it becomes their idea? Right. You know, Which like, brings us to like the Whitey Bulger type situation, right? Like we're you know uh, and, explain that, please. Well, the, the the FBI had uh, an incredibly close relationship with. Uh, it was an informant. Yeah, with with Whitey Bulger, who the Irish gangster in in Boston, who uh, was an FBI informant, and essentially they were sort of greenlighting, um, you know, his activities in order to get to the the Italian mafia, uh, and you know, but there's the there was a, there's a line, you know, yeah. that they crossed. Uh, oh, you know, into into actively being involved, right? And yeah. and questions: How often do they do that? You know, right? Is that standard operational procedure? Right. Yeah, we don't know. I mean, I, I think uh, it, it's it's interesting that the the guy who's doing the pros- the the investigation into the Russiagate stuff now, John Durham, was also the prosecutor in that case. Um, I don't think that's a coincidence because he's you know, but, but anyway. Uh, but yeah, no. The, the 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 thing with Biden talking about, um, you know, how white supremacy is the biggest threat. It's clearly it, there, there's clearly something deeply wrong with this country. That there clearly is domestic white terrorism. There's no question that yes. that, that it exists. But they've become really really loose with that term. Like the Rittenhouse case was a classic example for uh, for me. Right. Of of how you just. You have to be more careful about that. Like they were calling him a white supremacist the on the president first day. Called him a white supremacist. The president called him like just just on the level of libel. Yeah, we used to be afraid to do that, right? right. Like yeah. you, you would have to have something that allowed you to say that this guy was a white supremacist before you put that on the air or in print, because you'd, you'd be afraid of being sued. You'd, you'd be the end of, end of your career. Yeah. Um, and all they really had were some vague cultural markers, right? Like, would I tell my kid to pick up an AR-15 and go go to a protest? Absolutely not. But, you know, as a journalist, I can't call him that unless I have something more. You know? There was a t- the difference between calling it a protest and the air of fear and chaos that was prevalent when that whole thing went down. This was post the George Floyd riots and everything was crazy. In Los Angeles, they were lighting cop cars on fire. There were pallets of bricks that are mysteriously dropped off at protest sites and windows were smashed through Beverly Hills. They had an early curfew. People 
have quick memories. They have short memories, and they forget how fucking crazy it was. Like, right after that George Floyd protest, or right after George Floyd's murder, when everybody was chaotic, like, the, the country was in a state of chaos, that's when that happened. Right. So, this kid was asked by, I think they had a used car lot. By the way, have you ever seen the guys who uh, he was no. told to? They're Indian. Uh-huh. I think they're Indian. I think, I think if this is accurate, I got another meme for you because I love memes. <laughs> oh, I'll find it. Um, I mean, the other thing about that case was that it, it, you know the, the the protests in Kenosha were about the Jacob Blake case, which was yes. And you know, I, I wrote a book about the Eric Garner case, uh, which was you know unequivocally a brutal police killing where the police were at fault, like no question about it. But the the Blake incident was much more complicated, right? right? Like, and there's a reason. Like, if you look at the reasons why the the DA and, uh, and and the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department didn't file charges in that case, is because there was a lot of stuff about that case that was, you know, made it made it. There's a lot of gray area in terms of the decision making that the that the police made there. And people naturally assumed, and this is this is what we do now. We see something on on Twitter. We see like a, a twenty second piece of video. We think we know the whole story, but the rea- you know, the reality is most of the time, the initial impression of news is wrong. Uh, at least somewhere, there's usually some kind of error built in, and that's why we need the next two and three days and months to sort out exactly what happened. But you, and in that case, you know, the, we we just didn't. Um, it, uh, there, there were a lot of ambiguities that just got turned in instantaneously into into a narrative that, um, you know, that was really unfortunate. There's also a frantic rush and to say that someone was racist or a white supremacist, and there was a narrative that that was rewarded. Paul, this meme that I just sent you, this is why I sent it. I have a whole meme folder on my iPhone that I just can't wait to use. So he wanted to protect a business owned by these guys. I don't know if they're Middle Eastern or um, Indian or what what they were. It says shoots these guys and shows shoots three white guys. Right, <laughs> worst yeah, exactly. white supremacist ever. Not only that, but one of the guys that he shot was a repeat offender, child rapist. Right, the guy in the middle. I mean, he he raped multiple children. Mentally ill. I mean, yeah, literally one of the. It's just one of the worst crimes you could imagine. But they, sort of without hesitation, people would do things like say, well, it's clearly a problem that there, um, you know, there weren't enough uh, minorities in the jury in this case where there, everybody involved was white. Um, I think a lot of... A lot of the news consumers were were just sort of led to believe certain things just by the way, that, by implication. They 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 didn't always identify whether the people who got shot were were white or black or anything. They would just sort of say they were shot. Meanwhile, they would say repeatedly that what that that Rittenhouse was white. I have friends that are black that didn't know that they were white victims until the trial started. Right, and that said, dude, I thought he shot black people. Mm-hmm. They didn't. They literally didn't know. And so the the thing was, it was a Black Lives Matter protest 
he shot people. They thought he shot black people. They thought he was a racist. And then the president calls him a white supremacist. I got the picture. Right, right. And and you can see how that can happen. Yes. If you if you're just picking up, you know, the newspaper or you're watching CNN and they're just neglecting to leave out certain details, um, which ha- you know it has to be strategic. And again, this is this this gets back to what I was saying before. It's not like anybody tells you to do this. Right. You just sort of know that the story is going to sell better or it's going to play better if you highlight certain things right and and i think that's what happens with you know with with a lot of the people in this case and i, I it's it's uncomfortable to talk about this stuff because people assume that you have sympathies with somebody like rittenhouse or you know all the people who lionized them on you know on fox fox news that's not it you just you just got to get this stuff right you have a heightened responsibility to get it right when people are amped up and they're and they're mad and they're ready to go out in the streets and and fight each other. Yeah. That's when you have to be super careful about what you say, you know, especially it, in media. It really highlights the importance of real journalism because this would have never taken place if real journalism had been steadfastly followed from the jump. If people said this is what we know and this is what happened, these are the victims, these people were the... one of the things about like any kind of protest or any kind of chaos and this is something that is just part of human nature when people know that there's chaos and there's protest there's a lot of people that join in that really have nothing to do with it exactly and i think that's that's what was going on here particularly with that one guy who was the child rapist right and and that happened all over the country by the way after the floyd thing and which was which is one of the reasons why the the reporting about that was was so disappointing Right, because there were there were lots and lots of reporters, and I, I knew a few of them, um, who were kind of discouraged from talking about, uh, you know, some of the ancillary stories. Right, like, okay, this neighborhood has been damaged, therefore elderly people can't get their prescriptions because the drugstore has been burned down, or whatever, whatever right. it is. Right, because the because the implication is that the protesters, their cause was unjust. So let's so let's not do that story. Um, but in many cases, these weren't really even protesters. Right. Uh, in some places, they were, uh, and in, in in some places, they weren't. Right. But that's but that's what the job is for. You like we have to go out there and ask. You know, uh, was this was this part of the protest? Was this this opportunistic looting? You know, sorry. You and this phone. I know. Just, I'm sorry. Just put it on silent. How dare you? I know. I know. I love your ringtone, though. It's very festive. <laughs> it is festive. I'm sorry. It's cute. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, listen, man. I'm the last person. To, I've I've fucked up. I've done that. <laughs> um, the the problem with being honest about that when there's a frenzy in the air, which there most certainly was post George Floyd, is that it's dangerous, mm. and you know you can get attacked for just stating facts, like um. There was a lot of people on the right that were trying to say that he wasn't murdered and that he died of a a fentanyl overdose and that he would have died anyway. And to those people, I was saying, fuck you, because like you you have no idea what it's like to have someone lean on your neck for eight and a half minutes. I actually do. Like I've I've had guys do jujitsu and put their fucking knee on my neck for a minute or thirty seconds. It's horrific mm-hmm. to to imagine being handcuffed and someone do that on the concrete, not even a jujitsu mat. It's it's impossible to overstate that you most likely 
are either you're gonna go unconscious or something something really fucked up is gonna happen to you. It's very very bad. Mm. It's not as simple as he got a, a drug over. So the, we have fucking clear evidence of this guy kneeling on his neck for eight minutes and forty something seconds. Right. There is no fucking way that didn't have an effect on him. And I think someone tried to do that. They tried to make a point that it's not that big of a deal, and they had someone do it to him, and they tapped out early. Was it Crowder? Did did he do that? Someone did that. I don't know who did that. But my point is, because of that, there was a narrative where you weren't allowed to say other things about George Floyd that were true, like the fact that he held a gun to a, a pregnant woman's stomach when he was robbing her. Mm-hmm. Like he, he wasn't a good guy. He did all. He should not have had that happen to him by any stretch of the imagination. There's no world where what that guy did was okay. But this is not a good guy. Like th- to make statues of him and lionize him and make him out to be some sort of a hero. That's not accurate either. Right. But yeah. you couldn't say that. Yeah, they made, made sort of a rel- religious icon out of him. Right. The, 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 the same kind of misreporting on the in the other direction happened in the Garner case, which I again I wrote a book about. Um, there were a lot of people who tried to say that he was killed because he was diabetic and he was overweight. Um, yeah, and that clearly was not the case. Like I had no. I had police sources tr- trying to sell me that off the record all the time. That um, oh, you know he w- he would have gone anyway, right? And look, a watch the video, but don't even just do that. Like read the medical examiner's report, which says homicide on it. Uh, you know, yeah, because. They've determined medically the cause of death was, and you know, compression of the chest. In other words, you you, you can't just go off what somebody says about something. You have to right. look into it and like look into it again and again and again. And in you know, in the case of Garner, like Garner was somebody who had some pretty bad stuff in his his past, going back a long way, but had kind of turned his life around. And was somebody who was known on the block as being a really good dude who broke up fights, um, you know, gave all his money to his fa- to his family members. He, one of the reasons his clothes were in such disrepair is that he wouldn't buy himself new clothes. He sp- he gave every every dollar to his kids. Wow! Like, like that's he was a good dude. But you can't. But these are these are details you got to you know you got to tell the truth about the other stuff. Like yeah. I, I knew his daughter Erica, and we, we talked about. Like how we're how she wanted to see the book done, and I said, "Well, how do you want me to deal with the stuff from his past?" You know, um, and she and she said, "Look, he was he was just a man, right? Like you, you got to show all that stuff." Uh, and I thought that was incredibly cool of her. You know, like she she uh, she really admired her father. She thought he had gotten through a lot of things, but she didn't want him to be like a two dimensional character. You know, well, it's and fasc- I think, uh, it, it, and that's that what is they've done. very admirable. Um, it's fascinating when you think how the times have changed since then, because now there's not a chance in hell they would arrest him for doing that. Policing has gotten so loose; they're so scared of arresting people for. He got arrested for selling loose cigarettes. He wasn't even doing it. That's the hilarious part. Yes, right, right, yeah. right. He was that day. He, I mean, he he, he did, had he, done he, it in the past, right? But he wasn't doing it that day, and th- they. They physically manhandled him and they strangled him and you know, and then they tried to say it wasn't chokehold Which is the same thing that I say about the the 
the thing with George Floyd. Fuck you. Yeah. I, well, anybody I, who tries to say that. Do that to me, I'm going to tap out. It's a chokehold. He's right. fucking strangling the guy. Like, if you get a guy who knows how to choke you, and I'm sh- assuming the cop knows how to choke people, he seemed like a strong guy, you get a hold of your neck like that, that's a fucking chokehold. Mm-hmm. It's not just a restraint. And it didn't have to happen. One thing that has changed that I think, I mean, there's a lot of negativity. There's a lot of negative shit that's happened from this whole defund the police thing and the fact that, um, you know, uh, the p- police officers feel so, they, they, they don't feel like they can do their job anymore without risking getting in trouble for something. Like they're just a standard job. So they're letting so many more things happen. And if you look at the amount of crimes, like the uptick in crimes post pandemic, it's irrational. I mean, it's really wild. What and that's another thing that I that was really disappointing to me after the um, after the Floyd thing happened because nobody wanted to look at the the policy issue like uh, why what's the biggest contributing factor to police brutality cases it's the number of contacts you have between police and people uh, and a lot of that has to do with the heightened number of stops. Um, that you have through uh, programs like Stop and Frisk, um, or you know, in, in New York it was Clean Halls, right? Like there, it's this this uh, what they what they call the community policing techniques. The whole idea is let's stop a gazillion people. Um, we'll search them, right? Uh, because or we'll, we'll pat them down. This is that's based on a. a, a a Supreme Court case called Ohio v. Terry that allows police to do that if they have <clears throat> articulable suspicion that somebody is committing a crime, they're allowed to pat you down. So they used to not really use that that much. The innovation in the 80s, 90s, and going forward was let's let's just use that a lot. Let's just stop. Let let let's start stopping people all the time and patting them down, right? Uh, and they did it hundreds of thousands of times in New York. They did it in every city in the country. And what happens when you massively increase the number of times that police put their, their hands on people, a percentage of those contacts are going to go wrong, right? They just will. Somebody's going to get mad. They're not going to want to see their, their uh, book bag emptied on, on the ground. They're not going to be, you know, they're not going to want to have somebody put their hands down their pants. Um, and eventually someone's going to say no, like Eric Garner, right? And you're going to have... Uh, a death on your hands that was totally avoidable, yeah. right? And so, but you do need police for the real stuff. Like in other words, if somebody's somebody's at a uh, you know shows up at his ex girlfriend's house and starts waving a gun or a knife around and picks up a kid and runs for a car, like that's when you actually do need the police right. to to intervene. And that's what got lost in this whole debate was like, what do we what do we actually want police to do? you know, versus what have they been doing? And there was almost no discussion of the, of, of those policy issues. It was, it was just police are bad and, you know, therefore let's uh, take their money away. Whereas there's, there's so many instantly fixable things they could have done. And the most liberal cities have had the most irrational responses to it. So like, look, the Eric, the Garner thing is horrible, right? That should have never happened. So, here we go where we are now in San Francisco you can steal $900 worth of stuff and you can't get arrested so now you're having mass lootings where people are just running into stores throwing stuff in their bag and then leaving 
Right. Which is crazy. Like Northern California is fucked. They're really, and now LA. LA is experiencing a rash of these smash and grabs. They don't have any faith at all that, they're, that there's law enforcement that's going to take care of these things. So the, their fear of the cops is like non existent now. They're just stealing things. Right. And it's happening so often that it's an epi- they're, they're literally calling it an epidemic. Like, what do we do about this? How do you stop this? And how do you stop this given the, the current climate, the way people are viewing the police and the way the cops are viewing the support that they have from the community and from the government. It's kind of crazy. Well, and and a lot of those ideas probably came from people who live in affluent white communities who don't know what it is to, to occasionally need to call the police. Yes. Right? They, they live in towns where the, the police are basically there, you know, kind of for show or they do, they get overtime to, to do traffic stops and or or to you know a school parade and stuff like that they're not there for real crime right yeah. if you if you go into a tough neighborhood like where eric garner lived in, in in staten island there are debates in the street like um you know there'll, there'll be one group of people who say if this was a white neighborhood um they would never allow this much crime there'd be more police Right, and there and there there are people who are angry that they that there isn't uh, a legitimate police presence like at all times to protect them from things. Right, and there's another group that thinks the police are inherently bad and cause more problems than they create than than they fix, and they need to go away. But that's a legitimate d- debate that happens in in those neighborhoods. And if you look at the polls, you'll see that you know it's not necessarily coming from the black communities that you uh, the the defund efforts aren't always coming from there right the people who are most most in favor of that are the people who have no conception of what the police are for you know and that's frustrating too yeah. you know and i think that was misrepresented after the floyd thing like people want they want better policing they want smarter policing they want they want police who are less um you know aren't so quick to use force you know they want more non-lethal force they want it to be less less intrusive they want to be able to walk unmolested down the street without without it being assumed that they're dealing drugs or something or something like that but they don't want to be there be no police at all right well Uh, minneapolis is experiencing that now they're trying to fix it because they did kind of defund the police but now they've experienced more crime than ever and they're like okay we've got to do something right and the the expression that I've read recently is like we, we're trying to stop the bleeding right you know they the community leaders are talking about this like we've got to do something to stop the current climate of crime because it's actually worse than it was before George Floyd it didn't get, make it better when we de- defunded the police it made it worse and, and then again it's such a reversal of I mean it's happening now too but th- we used to overplay crime stories in the media because that was how um, that was how we you know we scared white readers of papers like the New York Post into coming back over and over again they put big you know they put mug shots on the front page of every black suspect and you know that the whole idea was they were playing on the the fears of middle-class white people and Queens and in the outer boroughs and stuff like that and they they gobbled that stuff up. Now they're kind of doing the opposite in some places. Like they're they're either underreporting crime or they're misreporting it. Um, 
you know, it's it's a strange phenomenon. Uh, it's it's not it's not easy to see like where they're going with that. Well, the Wisconsin uh, SUV, the guy who drove the SUV into the the Christmas right. parade, is a, a great example of that, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I it, it was odd to me that the that we haven't seen uh, a lot of follow up reporting on that. Like, where's well, how about the, the way they wrote about it? Just the the titles, right? The accident right. caused by an SUV, caused by an SUV, yeah, or a crash or something like that. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I get back to like where where's the spirit of um, just curiosity? Like, uh, I, I want to know what that was. Right. What was was like before I knew anything about who who drove the car, what the person looked like, anything. You know, your mind runs through all the scenarios. Is it somebody who's whacked out on drugs? Is it, is it a terrorist attack? Is it is it a, you know, I, I thought I thought about Charlottesville first. You know, right. that was one of the things I thought about. Right. So we want to know what it's. It, our job is to tell people, you know, what actually happened in these things. And you can't just stop and suddenly have a lack of curiosity once you know things don't exactly fit. I don't know. It fe- it just it just feels like they, they there was a lack of uh, resolve to get to the bottom of that. Well, the difference between the way right wing media covered it and left wing media was incredibly stark. Yeah, I mean, left wing media didn't touch the fact that this guy had posts supporting Hitler and that he had tried to run over his girlfriend in a car, which is why he was in jail. That he got let out on thousand dollars bail, which is incredibly low for a guy who tried to commit vehicular homicide. I mean, it's fucking wild. Yeah. And this trend of letting people out of jail easy that try to commit violent crimes and letting them off on very low bails and letting them right back out in the street is one of the weirder things that's going on right now. One of the weirder things that you see from these progressive district attorneys and in these li- liberal cities, it's, it's very strange, and I don't understand the logic behind it. I mean, I, I get it a, a little bit. I mean, I... I was a strong believer in bail reform. I, you know that you mentioned the thousand dollars. Amazingly, Eric Garner got set a thousand dollars bail once for uh, for something that wasn't even a, a misdemeanor. Like selling untaxed cigarettes is a is a violation. It's like something you get a ticket for. Right. Uh, but he got a, he got a thousand dollars bail. For well, that. that's outrageous. So again, but, right. but but somebody who commits a violent crime. Um, so there's this whole galaxy of other people who get what they call like nuisance bail. Like in other words, you know, whether it's solicitation or, you know, disorderly conduct or vandalism or something like that. What prosecutors have been, you know, they have this whole thing where they play games and they will try to get the judge to set bail just outside of the person's ability to pay. Right. Mm. Like, and, you know, they, they do an assessment of, um, you know, where you live, whether you have a job, whether, uh, whether you have a telephone in your house, all this stuff. They know roughly what you can afford when they go to ask for bail. And, the, you know, it's kind of a wink, wink, nudge, nudge thing between the judge and the prosecutors. Uh, and that's, that's a really bad system. That's why, why there were calls for bail reform, because what they were really doing was setting bail so high that people couldn't um, they either had to make a decision to plead early, right, like, or sit in Rikers, a place like Rikers Island 
and lose their jobs while they waited to adjudicate some really minor offense, right? So there's a, there's a good reason for bail reform, but you, you, that doesn't mean that bail in all cases needs to be like eliminated. Right. You know what I'm saying? Like, like in, in, in really in cases where there's a violent crime, like that's what it's for. Right. You know? And, and it just, exactly. That's a primary. It, you can't paint it all with the same brush. But I don't understand even the motivation of it. I just it's it's like if you were a real tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorist, you would think that someone is trying to destroy this country and someone's trying to destroy these cities and what's the best way to do it? Well the best way to do it is to let violent criminals run loose in the streets and have everybody freak out and then, you know, come up with a solution for it. Yeah, I, I a lot of the ideas that are coming out of um you know, what I used to consider like the liberal left or the Democratic Party that almost seemed to me like they're designed to lose votes, you know, like <laughs> yeah. the, like they're trying to give votes to the Republicans um, who are, of course, equally crazy, like in, in their own in their own way. But, yeah, stuff like that. I, I don't I don't even know um, where a lot of these ideas come from. Like I'm, I'm doing a story now about the Loudoun County, Virginia education mess and just a lot of the thinking there it's like um yeah it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me what what what, what uh what a lot a lot of the sort of intellectual class of this country is um they just a lot of their ideas are just really strange these days they don't make sense but they're being supported those ideas are supported by enough people there's enough people that believe in them that I don't think it really is they're trying to get the Republicans elected. I think they think that this is progress, and I think what you were saying earlier about how the kind of people that are calling for defunding the police don't really have police problems in their neighborhood. Right. They just have this idea that if they are for defunding the police, what they are for is the right side of criminal justice reform and that, you know, to be a progressive, you have to recognize there's systemic racism at the root cause of all these crimes and those need to be addressed. And it's not just about locking people up in jail, which, you know, makes sense. I really do think that there are root causes to all of these crime issues that we have in inner cities, whether it's Baltimore or the south side of Chicago or whatever, that if they don't address those problems, all the policing in the world's not going to fix it. You, and it's going to take generations because you're dealing with people that have dealt with these crime-ridden, gang-infested communities for decade after decade with no intervention whatsoever, no help, no – I mean, we, we spend countless amounts of money going overseas and fixing other countries. We don't do a fucking thing about horrendous inner city conditions. And when then we get confused as to why they continue to put out violent criminals. Yeah, it's, it's amazing because the, the, the same people who 10 or 15 years ago were trying to fix uh, the cities through essentially through brute force, right? So the, these were the people who were doing the stop and frisk programs. The, 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 what they were really doing... Uh, mainly, these were Democrats who were running these. These uh, they were had all the ma the important positions in all the big cities, and they were f their campaigns were funded by wealthy uh, real estate developers mainly, right? Uh, and they were using the police to imprison, you know, 
and arrest tens of thousands of people, um, casting a very wide net and trying to uh, impose order that way. Uh, those programs didn't really work. They, they caused a lot of instability. They caused an incredible amount of resentment, and they, and they resulted in a lot of these police brutality cases. And now they're swinging in another direction. They're trying to take, they're trying to take an opposite uh, but equally irrational approach to dealing with the problem. So they, they, you know, they try to solve it by shaking down, you know, 10 years ago is let's, let's shake down every black person who walks into the wrong neighborhood in New York or, or, or Philadelphia or Baltimore. Now, you know, somebody came up with a bright idea to, well, let's just completely not have police and, um, or defund that and, you know, put the money towards some other thing. Uh, I, I think those ideas are a lot, in many cases, equally stupid. Um, and it, it, it's just a, uh, an example of just in, intellectuals sometimes just uh, shouldn't be allowed to make every decision, you know. Um, that, that's, that's sort of an overriding theme in a lot of the stuff that I've covered over the years. I just don't know how we bounce back from this. I, it is amazing to me the impact of one man's death, um, the George Floyd death. It's amazing. Because if you go from that point forward, and obviously it's accentuated by the pandemic, and there's there was a lot of build up to it. There's been many many cases of police brutality that were egregious, and people were frustrated and furious. But that was the straw. That was the straw that broke the camel's back. And the difference between the country the day before that happened and now is so stark that if you told me one death of a guy who was, you know brutalized by the police and murdered in the way we saw all saw publicly is going to change the entire country. I would have said, how is that possible? Well, I think it, at the time, the, the entire debate was turbocharged by the fact that Donald Trump was in office. And, yeah. this, and this became, as everything did during the period, as hydroxychloroquine and the lab leak origin, everything yeah. is a referendum on Trumpism, right? So if George Floyd is killed and Joe Biden is president, is the reaction going to be the same? I, I kind of doubt it. Like, I, I, I think I think at the time there was an incredible amount of tension in the country. The culture war was just getting hotter and hotter all the time. And we were we had been moving from kind of uh, mania to mania in the news environment. Um, it was one thing after the other. Like, uh, it was the caravan story. It was kids on kids in cages. Brett Kavanaugh's nomination, Russia Gate, everything was a full-blown, massive panic, uh, and that was that was how everything was covered um, during the Trump years. And you know, I don't. So I think that was a major factor in, in what happened with with the Floyd story. Like, it, it couldn't just be a police killing, and they couldn't just fix the problem. They couldn't just deal with that one person. Uh, and they and they couldn't just look at sensible policy al alternatives. It had to be a referendum on the entire United States, right? Uh, and and whatever it was was wrong with the country that had led to Donald Trump being elected. And you know, sometimes you know, think things aren't always necessarily, um, you know, symbolic of something larger. You know, um, I, I don't know. I, they they they. I think the, I think during the Trump years there was a tendency to try to make panics out of everything, and um, you know that's that's not always healthy. 
I'm going to tell you something you're not going to like to hear. Sure. You know who your voice sounds like? Uh-oh. Who? Elizabeth Holmes. Oh, my God. The Theranosco. <laughs> Doesn't it? You see, your voice sounds a little bit like her fake voice. Really? Yes. Wow. I think like, if you toned it down a little bit, if you like high-pitched your voice just a little bit. Can you, I monetize that in any way? I don't think so. I think it's too late. <laughs> um, Sorry, that was a non No, that's all right. I'm, I'm too old to be self-conscious about stuff. But I got anyway, no, you so. have a great voice. Yeah. It's just weird for a woman. <laughs> <laughs> that's really funny. My wife is going to laugh about that. Have you paid attention to that trial at all? No, I haven't. What's, I'm, what's I am happened? fucking fascinated by it. Yeah. I, I, I am fascinated by charlatans. I'm mm -hmm. fascinated by people who pull the wool over incredibly rich people's eyes mm -hmm. and, and hoodwink them by she had like she fit this perfect narrative that they were looking for this billionaire genius woman who's the the boss lady of this uh, company that's going to do groundbreaking new work on you know blood testing and it's going to revolutionize the industry and help everyone and she had this you know fake voice and I'm <laughs> I'm fucking I'm so fascinated by her I'm so fascinated I by the story yeah, and it is a great story. I, I I love con man stories. In fact, that's one of the reasons why I spent so many years covering the the uh, financial crisis. Also, some of your best work. My my favorite book growing up was about a con man. It was a, the, the this book called Dead Souls uh, by a Russian writer named Gogol, um, and it's about it's it's about a guy who basically buys a bunch of dead serfs. Uh, and mortgages them because there was a loophole in Russian law back then. Like the, the census was so slow that if you bought the equivalent of a slave, uh, the, the, the state bureaucracy wouldn't know that that person was dead yet. Uh, so you could, you could go to a bank and mortgage your slaves uh, wow. and get cash for them, essentially, right? So they got went around just sort of buying dead slaves. But the, um, the, you know, con men are fascinating, right? They, and, yeah. and, and and especially in the in the internet age, there's so many different ways to rip people off um, to scale uh, that I, I think the authorities are just always going to be a couple of steps behind. I mean, you look at um, everything from Bernie Madoff to the, the one MDB scandal in Malaysia, which was an like unbelievable story, like uh, just basically you know stealing. You know, billions of dollars from from uh, investors around the world by representing you know a phony bond scheme. It's just incredibly easy to do. All you need to do is have, is have the appearance of, of respectability and, and and have a bunch of people who are respectable that have already bought into it. Exactly, it's that's the, the big Bernie Madoff thing, right? Right, right. You've seen the Sting, yes, right. So that that's that's what they call a big store con, right? Where everybody you see looks like they're sort of a natural part in the environment, yeah. uh, but actually they've been put there for a reason to, to sort of m mess with your perceptions of things. And, um, and that's what happened with, uh, with, that, with the Theranos, with 1MDB, with all, you know, the, the subprime mortgage scandals. Um, everybody looked like they were on the up and up, but actually they were all in on it, you know? Uh, and it, 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 there's just a lot of really interesting ways to rip people off in this environment. It's fascinating when someone like Bernie Madoff can get so many people. And I always thought, really I always thought before I read uh, your coverage of the banking crisis, 
I I thought there was someone out there who is really clearly paying attention <laughs> to all of the pieces that are moving, and I thought it was like straightforward, like like bad example maybe, but like we understand how fast cars are because we know the engineers that have worked to develop the displacement and the engines and how the transmissions work. And there's a clear trackable thing. Like you can't just come out with a car and say, this car goes zero to 60 in one tenth of a second. <laughs> and, and, and everyone's like, what, what are you talking about? Where's this, ha how is this being made? And this new technology that no one's ever seen before, None of that exists. We have new tires, and it's, it works on gravity propulsion systems. It doesn't even have anything to do with engines. The, you would have to, it would be trackable, right? Like an engine is trackable. I thought finances were trackable. <laughs> you think it's funny? Well, well you think it's funny because you had to do a lot of research. I did, yeah. So pull that microphone in front of you a little more. Sorry. There, no worries. So Madoff was, he was part of what he was doing was he was operating on people's belief in a non-existent regulatory scheme. Um, we do have visibility into parts of the financial structure. We have a pretty well-regulated uh, stock exchange, for instance. Like, I mean, there are certainly problems there, too, but you can, you can see every trade, more or less, right? Or you can see most of the trades. Actually, I'm going to get in trouble saying that that even. But with Bernie Madoff, he didn't even do trades. There's nobody checking. Right, 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 right. Like, and so there, you know, there was an investigator, Harry Markopoulos. There was a guy, sort of independently, kind of figured out that there was something wrong with the situation. And all Madoff was doing is this is a classic old school Ponzi scheme. You 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 guarantee a certain amount of returns. Some people give you some money up front. You take all that money, you, uh, and then as new people come in, you give the early investors a little taste as if those are investment returns. Actually, all it is is just one big fungible pile of money, um, you know, and there's no investment, there's no nothing. It's just, it's just a con, right? He never was doing any trading. He wasn't doing anything. He just had a big pile of money, and he was constantly bringing in new people. But didn't he start off as an actual legitimate trader? It, you know, that happens a lot, actually. There are, there are a number of people who start off trying to do it right. No, I don't, I don't know if he, he actually was doing trades. Uh, like when, when, he, when, he, when he stopped doing that, I'm not sure. But there, there are a number of stories uh, about people who start off like their hedge funds. Hedge funds don't really get checked, right? So if you're running a hedge fund and you want to do it right, you have some kind of investment strategy you think is going to work. So you get a whole bunch of high, high net worth people, and you say, "Can you give me five hundred thousand dollars?" They all throw money in, and you start investing, and it doesn't work. And then suddenly there's this temptation. Well. I don't have to tell them, you know. I can I can put out a report that says we actually earned seven percent or or fourteen percent this year, uh, and no one's going to check because there isn't there isn't a body that checks uh, for that kind of investment. Uh, so yeah, I think the public doesn't know that there are all these um, sort of blank spots in in the financial universe, and um, and that's why these these sort of cons pr proliferate. Uh, and it's part of what I think is motivating things like GameStop. Like that, you know, there's this whole crew of people who are like, you know what, the system is so corrupt. We're gonna we're gonna rig it for ourselves, 
and we're going to take some of these people down. Uh, and that was why there was all this joy at, you know, at, at blowing up a couple of hedge funds um, mm. because, you know, the, the system is easy, is manip- it's, you can manipulate it. And they did it. And that's that, uh, I think it was interesting what, what happened there. Yeah, it is interesting. And it's interesting the steps they took to tr- sort of combat what these people were doing. It's like, no, 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 you can't use that loophole. You can only use the loopholes that we're using. Right, exactly. Which yeah. is, but it was such a clearly organized campaign, like publicly organized campaign. That's one of the things that made it so fascinating, and that it was successful. Well, yeah, and and you know the the response by the authorities confirmed every suspicion of all these these uh, the GameStop investors, but it didn't break them. Like they're still holding. You know what I'm saying? Like, and, and that whole phenomenon is is, is fascinating, actually. Like. Um, and that, that's another story that was massively misreported, right? It, uh, I talked to a lot of the people who invested in GameStop, and a lot of them were people who got ruined after the 2008 crash, whose families got ruined after the 2008 crash. And this was their way of kind of getting revenge on the system. It's, it's a, it was a form of protest. Now, for some people, it was just a way to make money, right? Um, and they thought... Uh, they could just profit off this this squeeze play, uh, but for a lot of people, this was this was like legitimately a political, uh, you know, rage response, and they didn't present it that way in in the news media. They they presented it as, um, you know, a gang of sort of upper class people who were trying to or middle class people who were trying to uh, manipulate the system for gain, uh, and they they. They edited out the the pain part of it that motivated a lot of mm. these people. My next door neighbor lost everything in two thousand eight. Um, back when I lived in California, <clears throat> he um, he had the property right next to mine, and he would show up. There was nothing built on it, he, but he had bought this really nice property with a great view. And his dream was to build this, you know, dream home there. Mm. And um, I would watch him like clear it off all the time, and one day I just walked up and started talking to him. And I said, "When are you when are you going to build here?" And then he gave me the story that he lost everything in 2008, and he had had everything all set up, and he was getting ready to build. And now he would just show up and like trim the grass, and he was so fucking sad. Yeah, because he, he lost probably everything. yeah he had a, probably had his money tied up in mortgage-backed securities. So uh-huh. yeah. he lost he lost everything. He lost all of his life's work, and here he was. I'm guessing he was in his 70s, and then uh, he stopped showing up. And then I um, got a hold of someone that I knew that knew him, and he was suffering from some severe health problems, and eventually wound up passing away. So it's like That's... this guy was just crushed by this just crushed and this is when i'm lo- talking to this guy's probably we're talking like right afterwards it right was like 2010 right ish somewhere like there but i remember the look in his eye when he was talking to me about what happened with, with the banking crisis and the, the crash and it was so depressing because you should imagine if you put your faith in the system and you grinded your ass off for you know x amount of years and then you finally think you hit the finish line and then all this fuckery takes all your earnings away everything gone 
Nothing left. So so imagine that story replicated like 15 million times or 20 million times or you know 25 million times. Yeah. And it's it's all these people who've lost everything. And not only have they lost everything, they they look on TV and they see that the people who did it got the bailed bonuses. out. They got bailed out immediately. Uh and you know, were made whole again. That the 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 wealth gap expanded after that. Just to take an example, like we were talking about Bernie Madoff before. Bernie Madoff's banker was J.P. Morgan Chase. Okay, so the bank, you know, which should have been monitoring whether or not their client actually had a legitimate business, you know, <laughs> uh, didn't. You know, um, yeah. that doesn't seem too much to ask. It, yeah, it doesn't. Especially seem... if it's their business. Right. It's not like a business they don't understand, like complex chemistry or something. Right. Exactly. You know, we were talking about the big store con. Like they're they're part of the con, right? Like this guy banks with J.P. Morgan Chase. Right. Uh, right. So it, it's it's part it's part of the sales pitch. Like, of course he's legitimate. You know, it's it's endorsed by the, the the biggest commercial bank in the country. And I'm sure if you go to his office, it's gorgeous, and you look at some beautiful building that he's in, and right. So all these people see that you know banks like Chase and Goldman that were selling these mortgage-backed securities to everybody that were that were letting people like Bernie Madoff run wild that were involved in the 1MDB scandal in Malaysia that ripped off that entire country. Um, and they see that they're continually bailed out. Like, after the pandemic, uh, the banks had their best year uh, in history in, in, uh, in 2020. Uh, yeah. Because, because why? Because when you have the, the CARES Act, um, you know, which is all that money from the Fed that went to rescue everybody to to to, to keep all these companies in business. Somebody has to underwrite all that lending, right? Uh, like the the Fed is basically lending all these, buying all these bonds. There's all this new lending to companies that's coming from the government. Well, some private entity has to do all that underwriting. So banks made like 140 or 150 billion dollars in profits just from underwriting in in 2020. So they all got rich off the bailouts for the pandemic, you know. And so, and which is exactly what happened in after 2008. Like not only did they get rescued for the actual crash, but the whole the whole bailout they get they got additional money for servicing the bailout. You understand? Like that, that yeah. was so people. When they when they ask, well, why does something like Trump happen? It's because there's millions of people who look out there and say, I got I got fucked, right? Those people got rescued, and they don't know exactly why or how, but they know something must be wrong, you know. And then somebody like Trump comes along and says, it gives them an explanation. It makes more sense than what they're being told, you know. Um, and so they vote for that person, and that's that's what's going to happen now because the same thing is happening, you know, out during the pandemic. Like a lot of once again, people are kind of struggling; they're being ruined. But the you know the one percent is kind of being artificially sustained by this this run of you know public support that's going to make them all rich, and it's just going to drive that resentment even further. Well, it's also 
the collapse of small businesses, mm-hmm. which is a, a big factor in this. The the big businesses like Target and Walgreens and Walmart, they expanded and they actually profited from the pandemic, whereas these other stores that were forced to close down, they were forced to not be open or to have extreme limitations, they suffered greatly. Restaurants in particular, right? Absolutely, yeah. And, and the, again, this is another classic consequence of a bailout. Like after after 2008, there was a thing called the um, the implied bailout. So just the fact that the public knows that the government is never going to let J.P. Morgan Chase or Goldman Sachs uh, or Bank of America go out of business allows them to borrow money more cheaply than some local bank, right? The government might let a local bank go out of business. Mm. Uh, so when they go out into the open market to borrow money, it costs more. Like the the investors, um, the people who are lending them money uh, are going to demand more they're going to demand more from the from that small bank than they're going to, they're going to demand from Chase because they know that the government's never going to let them lose uh, go out of business. They're they're not going to lose on that investment. Right. So that it creates artificially an advantage for the big company versus the small company. Uh, and that's that's what happened with with the with the CARES Act. Like again, the 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 market looks out at this and they say, "Okay, well, American Airlines is never going to go out of business." Like Absolutely, for sure, uh, you know the government's going to step in and rec- and and save them. Uh, they've d- demonstrated that now, but maybe some smaller airline they might they might let go out of business. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, Spirit and, or something like that. Yeah, exactly. So it it creates uh, it, it creates this natural tension. And and another thing that happened, you know, after 2008 was the when they split up. That when they, when they took the failing companies um, like Washington Mutual, rather than like break them up into smaller parts so they could become independent small enterprises, what they did is they folded them all into the big companies. They they got companies like Chase and Bank of America to buy up these smaller entities. So they they took uh, they took an already concentrated marketplace and they made it more concentrated. They made the big companies that were already too big to fail, they made them even too big to failure. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> so that's happening again. Um, and it's, it's again, it's going gonna, it's gonna to drive resentment. You add the fact that kind of small business people tend to be the kind of people who are you know, Republican Trump supporters who are being vilified right? And and you know that it's it's going to drive that resentment even further. And we're only one year into this, right? Yeah. I mean, we're it's 2021, almost 2022. What is this going to look like at 2023? Right. Right. And what kind of a fever pitch is this country going to be in by then? Well, I mean, how how long can you uh, can you put people under pressure and not expect? them to go nuts you know i mean like i think if you people are going to look out they're going to see well, what happened after the pandemic well you know the banks had their best year ever the pharmaceutical companies are making ungodly risk-free profits essentially right like right. The, the government is making sure that um they will never have to compete 
uh, or or give up, uh, you know, the their patent protections on, on their vaccines. They're going to buy the they're going to buy every medicine that they produce at full price. Uh, and you know, Moderna made what eleven billion dollars last year. Um, you know, they're they're all having record record. Um, Profit years. The defense contractors got advances on all their contracts at the beginning of the uh, of the pandemic, so they're doing great. Um, you know, but small businesses aren't. Like you know, it's it's they're rescuing the big enterprises, they're, and they're letting the the small ones go. You know, it's capitalism for them, and it's kind of socialism for everybody else, uh, for the big firms and. That's just not going to hold forever. It's know? also expanding the, the the power that pharmaceutical drug companies have, and the concern with that is like, it's not that pharmaceutical drug companies are inherently one hundred percent evil. No, they produce drugs that are very beneficial to people, and we we all are better off because of them. You know, there's there's drugs that help people with all sorts of diseases and all sorts of cures, and great. All these corporations operate under the premise that every year is going to be better than the year before. How the fuck do you do that when you have this insane windfall? You have this insane year where you're making untold billions of dollars. Like if somebody pointed out to me what Moderna's first quarter of uh, what, what, what like a quarter of this year looks like, the difference between how much they made off the vaccines versus how much they made off of everything else. And it's a giant percentage of the profit. Like, yeah, Jamie, maybe it, you can find I, it. I think their, their numbers for this quarter were like $3.4 billion. I'm not, I'm not sure. It was something like that. Something crazy like that, but more than three is the vaccine. Right. It's something nutty like that. Mm-hmm. And, but but mm-hmm. the point is, you can't do that if they don't need them anymore. Like, imagine if the vaccine cured everybody. There's no more need for a vaccine. It's a one-shot deal like polio or like the measles. And then all that profit goes away. Well, how, you, have a, you have stakeholders. You have stockholders. You have, you have a responsibility to your company. You're, you're supposed to have growth this year. How come this year we're down 75%? Well, sir, the pandemic's gone. It's over. No, 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 no. We've got to figure out a way to make more money. Like this is what corporations do. It this is, and I'm not insinuating that they're going to start a pandemic or fake a pandemic or come up with some reason why they should give people medication they don't need. But this is a quality that corporations have. Absolutely, and forget about the vaccine for a minute. Just look at other kinds of drugs, right? Look at, um, you know, drugs like Adderall, right? Suddenly, we start finding out that every kid in the country needs to be medicated for, you know, ADHD, uh, and you know that that there are people trying to pass laws in various states that would that would mandate that as a treatment. You know, again, they they have an incentive to try to create that market, right? Or let's just say, you know, there's there's a drug that um, if you split it into two generics. It costs, you know, a dollar for people to use. But there's a new drug on the market that combines both of them, um, and uh, costs eighty dollars a dose or something like that. They're gonna they're gonna be incentivized to try to get people to take that you know that that drug instead of the two the two separate generics. 
um, even though that's not good for you know the the, the consumer. There's so many different ways that the these companies can, you know sort of prey on people, uh, and and this even removes from the equation the fact that all a lot of their R and D is publicly funded. You know they get NIH grants and you know and. and and in the case of the pandemic, they're you know they're specifically given significant amount, I'm sorry, significant amounts of taxpayer money to, to research into the vaccines, and, and they're going to make all the profits from that. It doesn't make any sense. Not only that, they have zero risk of ever being sued from side effects. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Which they remove the liability protection. Wild. Right. That is wild. It's going to be fascinating to see just. If you were uh, objective, if you were an alien from another planet and you were observing these industries, it would be fascinating just to watch without any horror how they figure out a way to try to make as much money. If this, if like say if the, the virus goes away and you know whether it mutates into a form like what happened with the Spanish flu where it's non-lethal and it gets to some new place where it's not what we have to worry about anymore. Like the Omicron thing. Right, the Omicron thing, which seems to be no one has died from it so far. Right. I mean, and this is wild that they're trying to declaring a state of emergency in New York City for something that no one's died from. It was really funny. The headlines, they seem bummed about it. Right. Yeah, isn't right. that weird? Yeah, they do because, well, they're looking for fear. But the what they're doing with pharmaceutical companies and advertising. I want to play you this because I was watching this last night. I was watching uh, some fights and this came up and I, I had to record it because I'm like, this is one of the fucking wackiest things I have ever heard in my life. Listen to what they're saying are the side effects of this shit. For adults with insomnia, prescription Davigo can help. Davigo it's about insomnia. People that have... Fall asleep faster and stay asleep longer. That sounds good, right? Do not take Davigo if you have narcolepsy. Drive or operate heavy machinery. Reasonable. Feel fully awake. Seems reasonable. May lead to doing activities while not fully awake. Like what? Walking, driving, and making or eating food without remembering them the next day. Huh? Vigo may cause sleepiness <laughs> during the day. It may cause temporary leg weakness or inability to move or talk while falling asleep or waking up. Worsening depression, including suicidal thoughts, may occur. This is like that scene from Airplane. Vigo is sleepiness. So ask your healthcare provider about Davigo. Hey, hey, hey. Why, why would I ask the healthcare provider? He just told me I might not remember walking around. <laughs> I might not be able to move. I might want to kill myself just because I can't sleep. Oh, by the way. Yeah. Yeah, that's amazing. But right? these ads are so crazy. There's no other countries other than New Zealand that allow these ads. They have beautiful music. They have people that are happy. You watch this video where this person, this this uh, ad, this lady's lying there sleeping and plants are growing around her. It's all gorgeous. It, it looks like the best drug experience ever. It like, sounds I want amazing. That drug. Yeah. It sounds like finally I've got a solution to my insomnia. <laughs> But the, the the idea that they're allowed to do this manipulative advertising on vulnerable people that are seeking some sort of a some sort of a solution to whatever health problem they have is goddamn crazy. Yeah, and then and, and it bleeds into the coverage of everything. Like during the pandemic, it, okay, fine. Let's 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 assume just let's stipulate. Like I'm vaccinated. Like I I. I believe the vaccine works um you know i got my booster shot and everything but the the lack of curiosity 
in the press about questions like, do kids really need it? Um, is it absolutely necessary for somebody who's like under 12 to have to have a vaccine? What if you've already had the disease? Like everything was off limits. And this goes back to what we were talking about before. It's like every story is all or nothing. There's no in between anything. You can't you can't even consider um, any of these questions. And it makes it impossible to, to get to the bottom of things if you can't even start at step one and, look, and start looking at any of these questions. Well, there's been a capture, right? And there's been a pharmaceutical company capture of the narrative. And that is that there are no therapeutics. There is the vaccine. The vaccine is your only way. And they've even been instructed in many places to deny people certain effective therapeutics. What does it say? Okay. Pfizer, BioNTech, and Moderna making $1,000 profit every second while the world's poorest countries remain largely unvaccinated. And this is the thing because they are not willing to give up their patent to allow poor countries to produce the vaccine. Right. So they're... Which incidentally puts the lie to all of the uh, pandemic of the unvaccinated. Right. Like, if you really believe that, if you really believe that um, unvaccinated people are the cause of all the suffering, uh, and it, shame on anybody who doesn't get the vaccine, then you would push for a patent waiver so that everybody else in the world who, with whom you are connected, <laughs> you know, the world, the world is interconnected. Yes. Uh, if you really believe that, that is what you would do. You, you would push for a patent waiver. Instead, they are protecting the profits of these companies um, very quietly. Like there's not a whole lot of, you know, uh, controversy in the news media about whether or not the Biden administration is going to lean on these these companies to to give up their cash cow, um, and yet and they, so they they're allowing the companies to just rake in these billions of dollars, and they they villainize the people in this country who voluntarily don't get the vaccine, like that's the problem. Well, they've learned their lesson from ivermectin because ivermectin is now a generic drug, and that's one of the reasons why it's demonized. Is the fact that you can't. You don't own, no one owns a patent on it. You can make it's very cheap to make. Now, coincidentally, Africa is one of the least vaccinated places on earth and has the lowest numbers of cases. It's fucking bonkers. And they don't know why. They, they're trying to figure out why. There's no real understanding of why Africa, with I think Africa is like 6% of its population has been vaccinated, but it has some of the lowest instances of COVID infection on earth. Right. Right. And why, why is that? That would be interesting to know, right? Yeah. Like, and, and well, there's a widespread use of ivermectin because of river blindness and because of, uh, I think they use it for yellow fever, I think for dengue. I think it's used for other things as well. And there's also a widespread use of hydroxychloroquine. I'm not saying that, that is, that's the reason. I mean, maybe it's, um, maybe it's some of these areas are not coming into contact, regular contact with people from these countries that have high instances of infection. I don't know what the fucking answer is, but it's kind of crazy. Yeah. And, and there are countries around the world that, that have uh, approved it, uh, ivermectin as a, as a treatment. Japan. Uh, yeah. And I think there, there are a yeah. couple in South America too, yes. if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Um, 
They need real studies is what they need. There's right. too many. There's a lot of messy studies out there, apparently. When you talk to people that um, really understand the, the science behind it, there's something like there's too many different studies. Some studies where they used it in prophylaxis or studies that used it early on. There's studies that used it late term, which is much clearly much less effective. Right. Where it seems to have some potential is early on and in prophylaxis. But again, there is no rock solid data. Right. But what I found fascinating, I had no idea when I took it, that I, when I took it with all those other th- things that I took, that that one thing would be a big deal. I really had no idea. Yeah. I thought I would just tell people, hey, I feel good already. It's only been three days. Right. This is what I took. And people would go, oh, well, you should have got vaccinated. I expected that. But what I didn't expect was this one particular drug to be the thing that was on everybody's radar. Yeah. Because and- I, I read off a laundry list of things. I said monoclonal antibodies. I said um, Z-Pak. Uh, what was the steroid that I took? There was a steroid. Um, prednisone. Thank you. Um, ivermectin. I said all these things. I listed off everything. I said IV vitamin drips. I did all these different things that I took. And I said I felt pretty good. Right. And a couple of days later, I was negative. So it was like it threw in the fa- flew in the face a narrative that the only way to survive this was to be vaccinated. Not only was it, not only did I survive, but I was better quick, mm-hmm. like really quick. Right. And I was sick. Like it wasn't like I had like uh, it was um, there was no symptoms. I had symptoms. I mean, I had a fever. I, I was sweating like a pig in bed. I knew I was sick. And then a couple days later, I was better. But all they chose to concentrate on is this one drug that is generic. Yeah. Which is wild. And they, uh, and they sort of blatantly misreported it. Yeah. You know, the horse dewormer thing. Well, the dumb part about it is they, did, did they think I wasn't going to say anything? Yeah, I know. Like, I have bigger audience than you do. Like, what are you, stupid? Yeah, significantly. Like, how dumb is that? But th- I, don't think they, I don't think they've internalized that yet. No, but... Th- and this is this is like we were talking before about not being embarrassed about getting stuff wrong. Like it's right. it's not that hard to if you if they somebody wanted to criticize you and not get it wrong, they could have done it. Yeah, you know what I mean. Sure. But the the whole thing, like oh he's taking horse dewormer. Like why is there no why aren't they ashamed of? Just being factually incorrect, like it, it, the lack of, um, you know, any, any any kind of shame about that is a signal to audiences. It, it gives you credibility and it takes it away from them. I don't think they understood that, though. I don't think they understood that while they were doing it. I think they thought that they were going to get away with it. And I think until Sanjay Gupta came on the podcast, they really had no idea. Right. And then when he came on the podcast and... It just didn't go so good for him. That was that was a turning of the time. That was a, a recognition like, oh, we've fucking played a terrible hand here. Right. This is not good. Right. So therefore, we were, we're never going to let anybody go on your show again. I'm sure. I'm <laughs> right. sure there's going to be that. I'm sure. <laughs> you know. Which is, um, well, I think they're probably going to clean house over there anyway. I think uh, what what's going to happen at CNN now, you know, now that CNN is being run by different people. I think they're gonna. I think the Chris Cuomo thing is like one step 
I heard they're going to replace the entire cast with The View. They're going to take all the girls from The View. <laughs> That's going to be the news now. Would it be worse? <laughs> I don't know. It would be better. Yeah. It would be more entertainingly stupid. I, I Just kidding. I, I, I hope they actually recognize that there is a market for objective journalism. Well, so, yeah, I mean, that's that's abundantly clear. I think the the Substack experience has been it's been so fascinating for me. Um, I thought it would work, but I I had no idea that it would that it's like this. Uh, it would work the way it's working. Yeah, yeah. like just the, the the response is unbelievable, and um, you know, a, a lot of it is just people are just so tired of being manipulated and talked to in a certain way. Yes. The, you know, the, the, they don't like being talked at, you know, or or lectured or whatever. By people who they don't even think are superior to them intellectually. Well, they're not superior. That's right. the whole point. That's the like problem. The, you know, uh, journalists used to know that we're not rocket scientists. That's why we're, that's why we're in this business. Most of us flunked out of something real, like law or medicine or whatever. Right. Whatever. Right. We're we're like professional test crammers. We we get an assignment. We try to learn as much as we can about it in 36 hours, and then we then we we tell you about it. We're not that smart. It's you know it's 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 a tough job, you know, but it's it's not like a, a hard intellectual discipline. But they are they they pontificate on the air and they pretend that they have this special access to special knowledge, and and that that they're a level above. You know the common run of people, which is ironically a sure sign that they're not smart. Exactly, which is funny. Like Don Lemon's a great example of that. It's mm -hmm. the surest sign that he's not smart is how smart he tries to pretend that he is. And and, and it's so transparent. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and and I think that's one of the things that happens. Like you know, uh, when Gupta came on your your show. I mean, he's just a guy. Like he's not—he's not a bad guy necessarily. He's right? a good guy. Yeah, I think he's a good guy. Right, but it, it's just—it's kind of a, a Wizard of Oz thing where you know they're—they're—they're they're, they're trying to project this image of all knowingness and um, superiority, uh, moral and you know moral rectitude, uh, infallibility. Um, but all they're really doing is is telling people that they have a lack of humility and a lack of self-knowledge you know exactly and and it's it's really unfortunate because you know it wasn't that long ago that people like walter cronkite were the most trusted people in the country precisely because they they kind of had this attitude of you know well we're curious we don't really know you know like that that was that that was the way they presented the news back in the day like oh that's interesting let's tell you about this thing when did it shift i think I think it started with my with like my generation. It started with the <clears throat> people after uh, all the president's men came out, because before that, in my father's era, uh, journalism was a tr was more like a trade. You know, it, you were more likely to be um, the son or the daughter. More likely the son. It was almost all male back then. But it, you know, of, of an electrician or a plumber or something like. It was not something that upper class Ivy League kids went into you know, once upon a time, like back in the 60s, 50s, 60s, and 70s. Then it became a sexy profession uh, after all the president's men, after Watergate, everybody wanted to be Woodward and Bernstein. Hunter Thompson helped make it a little bit sexy. You know, uh, 
Rolling Stone and all that, their coverage. And it became a place for you know, sort of uh, upper class white kids to try to ha- um, make their way. It became a fashionable profession. And I saw, you know, the, the sort of transformation because when I, when I started covering uh, presidential campaigns, on the plane, and this was back when presidential campaigns had planes full of journalists. They don't have that anymore. Like now, there's only a couple who follow the people around. Like everybody's doing it by wire service reports now, for the most part. What, what did it used to be like? So you would have, like, if if you were following John Kerry in in 2004, which I did, you would have Kerry and and the aides would be up in like the equivalent of the first class section, and the entire back of the plane would be media. Right. And, you know, 80, 90, 100 reporters, you know, a, a couple of, uh, you know, there, some of them would be camera people, some of them would be tech people. But what, what was so interesting for me is there was a, a mix on, on the plane. Some of them were sort of the old hands who had been doing this since the 70s. Um, and they were much more kind of skeptical. They were much more likely to look at, at politicians like they're all pieces of shit i don't really care like in both parties i don't believe anything they say but i'm gonna sort of report it like that's my job but this new newer generation the younger generation they were so excited by they were jazzed by the proximity to an important person you know and i think you it was symbolized by something like primary colors you remember that movie yes so you know, that was written by a journalist, um, Joe Klein. Uh, originally, it was anonymous, um, but, it, you know, who had a close relationship with somebody on the Clinton campaign. And that became kind of the model of what campaign journalism was all about. Like, you were an insider. You were somebody who was in the know, uh, behind the rope line with the campaign. And that was what everybody wanted. They wanted to be like one of those people, like mm. who 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 got the secret, who knew in advance what the candidate was going to say. You know, and whereas the the older grouchy types were the ones who were trying to bust the candidate for something, you know, uh, or trying to catch him in a lie, or trying to figure out who was actually you know funding the campaign, or you know that kind of thing. And so that was where I think the difference started. I think it started in the 90s and in the early 2000s. And now it's like 100%. Like all all those old types are gone. Yeah, it's depressing. Wow. All of them. I remember uh, in Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail, Hunter S. Thompson was talking about how he had freedom because he wasn't coming back. Mm Mm-hmm. And so many of these guys were coming back, and so they had to sort of like follow some protocol or follow some rules. And you know, he did like when he was uh, pretending that Hubert Humphrey was on drugs. It was right, making in the game. up, yeah, making up fact that a Brazilian doctor had come to work <laughs> on him. Like he had this freedom to do that right. that they didn't have, and he had the freedom to look at it honestly, to look at it the way he thought the fucker he was yeah and and you you should always as a journalist you should never expect to retain your friends um because you will eventually have to write something negative about somebody who you've become friendly with so if you go into this business to be socially successful you're in the wrong business you 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 should be comfortable being a loner 
Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, or and, only have friends with people that you know follow the sort of morals and ethics that you do. Right. Yeah. Or just, that is possible, isn't it? It is possible, but for the most part, if you're trying to be friends with people you're covering, no, it, that it's not going to work. Right. It's right. Not work. And so what? What? What's regrettable about now is a lot of the people who are um, who are in journalism, they're they're upper class. They they are socially the same people that they're reporting on. Where whereas there used to be much more of a class difference. Uh, there, you know, you never had a phenomenon before. Well, it was much more rare before to have a situation, especially in local journalism, where you know the the reporter was somebody who s- saw himself or herself as being like uh, traveling in the same circles as the mayor or the, or a senator or the CEO of a company like uh, you know they just didn't really mix like that so they were outsiders who were who were who were reporting uh, and they didn't really they didn't really mind offending people because what the fuck they're they're not my friends um, but these people are all friends, like Rachel Maddow and and Democratic Party politicians. They're they're friends. Have you ever seen a video of Chuck Schumer and Stephen Colbert dancing together? Oh God, I can't even imagine. You need to see it. Do we, do we have time? You need to see it. Yeah, you need to just see them dancing together. <laughs> and 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 I feel the same way about comedians that you do about journalists. You know, like you. You can't be friends with those people because there's going to come a time where you have to talk shit about them. Dennis Miller ran into that with George Bush. I remember being incredibly disappointed because I was a Dennis Miller fan. As a comic, he was a very good comic. And, mm-hmm. You know, his, his HBO special was brilliant. Had some great shit, great jokes, great one-liners. Absolutely. Um, but then he said he was going to give George Bush a pass because he's his friend and he wouldn't make fun of him. Look at this. Chuck Schumer's got the mask on, and look at Colbert, no mask, spreading, spreading pandemic viruses. Look, he's dancing, high-fiving and dancing with Chuck Schumer. What is this? Well, what, what kind of signaling is this? Can you imagine Bill Hicks fucking dancing with a senator? Jesus Christ. Well, Colbert was never really a stand-up, so, I mean, I guess he has that. No, but, but I mean, but the, he was a comic when the Colbert Report was on. I mean, he was a that was hilarious. He, it was really good. He was great. Yeah, he was great. And that show was a, a great takeoff of a fucking pompous, ridiculous Republican. Exactly. I mean, it was fucking really good. It, and then when you see this, you're like, wait a minute, what the fuck? What are you doing? Right. It, the fuck are you doing? Or and why were you doing? The other thing before, like, right. was it was it to be to do this? Well, I think what happened was, and I'm just gonna guess, but I think what happened was he had this brilliant character. It was amazing on the Daily Show. Then he does the Colbert Report. It's amazing there. It's a great show, right? And then they offer him the fucking carrot. What's the carrot? The carrot's a late night talk show, right. and the, the late night talk show for, I guess, kind of my generation was the thing that everybody wanted. Kimmel and Fallon and all these guys, like, you got to host The Tonight Show? Or your or Jimmy Kimmel's got his own show? You got your own show? You got The Letterman Show? You got the this show, the that show? 
that that was the thing, man. Right. If you could get your own show like that, like you were fucking in. If they offered it to you, you took it. You right. took it. But then to be that show guy, he has to be a different guy. So now he's not Colbert from the show was this genius parody. Now he's just Stephen Colbert. Right. They, that's who he is. They they destroyed the essence. Well, by giving him something. The best example of it was when John Stewart came on, and John mm-hmm. Stewart was doing that bit about the lab leak theory, and Colbert is jumping in and stepping all over it. Right. And I'd, I'd, I'd like to see some evidence of that. And like he's like fucking up the bit. Clearly, Stewart, who's a great comic, is in the middle of a bit. Right. Yeah, exactly. And Colbert's trying to, he's like, a pan, you can see the panic in his eyes that <laughs> this is not going along with the narrative. So he's like, he's hamstringing the bit. Right. Which is crazy to see. Yeah, because they, he, his whole body is like physically mortified by the, the idea that he's sending off the wrong signals well, now. He is the boss of this show, and this show is going to allow this, this, this wild, reckless talk about the lab leak. You know, it's a great story that that's like sort of apropos to all this is um, in Seymour Hersh's book, uh, it's his memoir, Reporter. There's a story about how in the early 90s, the CIA wanted everybody to know that they had caught, this, I think it was an Israeli spy. Um, and so they call up Hersh because Hersh was the biggest uh, you know, investigative reporter in the country, and they invited him in, and they they said, uh, "Look, we're going to show you all this material, right?" And they brought him into a room, and they just gave him a whole packet of stuff, right? But he couldn't, like, his entire body rebelled. He's like, "I had spent my whole life getting the things; I could not be handed the things." You know right. what I mean? Because it's just not in his nature, right? Like to be you know, to be spoon fed. Right. right. And like, I think that's true with, with comics, with any kind of journalist. Like once, once you start getting, you know, handed things, then, then you're, you've lost. Yeah. You know what I mean? They have you at that point and you got to get out of that habit. You know, it's like, or you just never, you can't cross that line. I you think. can't cross that line. Yeah. You can't cross. But if you want to be on a talk show, you have to cross that line. There's right. no other way you get on that show. You can't get on that show and have some real counterculture narrative that is not approved and sanctioned and you, you spit it out there on NBC for the masses. When was the last talk show that was that, that had a, like a counterculture? I mean, Letterman Never. in the 80s maybe? Maybe a little Letterman. Bit? Yeah, Letterman. Well, Letterman was rebellious. I don't know if he was counterculture, but he was certainly rebellious and certainly the favorite of the people that weren't taking it all seriously. The people that wanted the tongue in cheek jabs at the celebrities and, you know, whereas like Jay Leno was letting everybody on and, oh, you're hilarious. Oh, that's great. That's awesome. Right. There was no, no attacking. Letterman would, you know, mock you and, yeah. and you were in, on, he was in on the joke. I, I remember when, um, you know, my father used to work for NBC, and when uh, the uh, the tech workers, NABIT, the union, when they went on strike, uh, and NBC brought in a bunch of scabs uh, to cross the picket line and do you know do all their work for them, Letterman used to get them to 
screw up basically like in other words the cameras would like go back and forth so he was he was taking a dig at management which was which was kind of cool like you know i thought that was an interesting Did he do thing. it on purpose and yeah. tell them to fuck up yeah oh, exactly right that you is know? funny that yeah. is funny well he was a very smart guy yeah and you know a funny guy like the funniest of all those if you if you go back and look at like the guys who have hosted talk shows and were really funny at it he's the best yeah i think he's the best i think yeah. he's the best talk show host of all time I, I I love that he was a weatherman before he uh, before the, he he, he yeah. did the talk show. I think he didn't, he didn't get in trouble for predicting hailstones the size of canned hams. Did he? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like a letter. I hope thing that's to a say. true story. I don't yeah, know. yeah, yeah. He's um, it's interesting because his Netflix thing didn't it wasn't the same. It seemed um, it just wasn't it was just didn't feel the same. Well, I mean. You know, apart from you know you and Chappelle, like who's doing sort of? I don't know. I mean, like the the the, the comedy scene to me. I don't know. It just seems like uh, sort of network television. There's nothing funny there. On network television, but in the clubs, it's one of the best times ever. Is it really? Yeah, there's a lot of daring motherfuckers out there. Bill Burr, who's oh, yeah, one, one of, of the best of all time, he's he's phenomenal, and he's he's killing it right now. He's he's fighting it, you know. He's not giving into it at all. He's fighting it, and there's there's a lot of guys like that out there now. There's guys coming up like Tim Dillon, Andrew Schultz, you know, uh, Mark Norman, Shane Gillis. There's a lot of funny fucking young guys that are coming out that are dedicated to real stand up. The way. There's a lot of people out there that are dedicated to being journalists and they're just trying to find their way through and they really respect real journalism. They don't want to be a, a corporate hack. Right. They want to be a real journalist. There's a lot of comics like that. That's great. I mean, and they must be real. The 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 stupider and more restrictive this environment gets, the the, the better the audience response yes. must be. Right? Yes. Oh, it's phenomenal. It's yeah. really incredible. It's incredible to see because, you know, I work with all these guys. We do clubs together and we do shows together and to see the response to this you know risky material material that like like they all dave stuff the stuff that got him canceled air quotes you know like my that my god was he murdering i mean murdering we did a, a series of shows together mm -hmm. and he's fucking he's one of the greatest of all time yeah and also being attacked for bit but it's you can't Comedy can't be safe. It's not possible. To, right. I mean, it can be safe with some jokes, but like in its entirety, it's not going to be safe. And the comics that are like real recognize that. And they also recognize that we got to stay together. We got to stay together and we got to help each other. Because the more we support each other, the more we get through this, the more the audience realizes, like, oh, this is what they do. This is not like they're not in court giving affidavits on their 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 viewpoint. They're trying to say funny things, right? And in doing so, you're going to cover very controversial topics. You're going to say things that are outrageous to say, but that's the point. And occasionally, you're going to say something that is a miss, right? Yes. Oh, yeah. all the time. All right. the time. That's the only way you find out if it hits. Right. When when you're especially when you're working the clubs, the whole idea is like I'll do a joke away and as I'm doing it, I'm like, I gotta get out of this. <laughs> like this is not the right way to do this. I'm doing it the wrong way. I'm saying it away, I'm taking a chance and I'm going down a dark alleyway and I, I hit a dead end. Right. I gotta figure out I gotta get out of this. And right. this is part of the process of creation because you really only create comedy, you write 
in silence alone, but you create it really with the audience's involvement. And you never really know how it's going to go over. You don't. You don't know. You have ideas. You know. You you kind of get it. You know how to do it. You know the process. You trust in the process, but. You really don't fucking know until you're there. And if someone takes a little snippet of that and tries to take, particularly if they take a snippet of that and they put it in quotes, right? You know, it's like you're, you know, that's not what it is. Like yeah. you're pretending that this is a real opinion. This is comedy. You know, just like Bob Marley didn't really shoot the sheriff. Right. Yeah. This is not real. <laughs> and that's. And if you you take away the ability to to screw it up, like it, yeah, it, it robs it of of its essence, basically. Right? Well, we use yonder bags now for a lot of shows, which which helps that because everyone's phones are locked up. They don't. Oh, not, right. Because like, everyone just wants to film everything now, which is bad for the experience watching it. Just take it in. Just like you take in everything else in life. Like, we have to learn how to take things in and enjoy the moment. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I went to see the Stones recently, and I'm guilty of it too because I, I took a couple pictures and some video, but I'm like, God, I need to just take this in. How many times am I going to get to see Mick Jagger and Keith Richards alive <laughs> on stage jamming and have it be really good? Keith Richards hasn't looked alive since like 1972. <laughs> but anyway, He's moving though. Yeah, no, He's that... animated. No, that's great. So listen, man, we learned a lot today. We learned yeah, that those you. Patriot fucks might be real. I think we learned that. There's a lot Are of, they? I don't know, man. I think, I think there's some involvement. I think there's some involvement. I'm suspicious. I'm yeah. suspicious of their outfits, but we learned they might be real. We learned um, that your voice sounds like Elizabeth Holmes a little bit. That is amazing. I can't wait to tell my wife You know, it's, it's really when you have the microphone in the wrong place. Like oh, okay. Your microphone here, like yeah. you bring it to your neck. Yeah. And Do you I start sound talking more liquor like, now? Yes. You sound more liquor now. <laughs> it was more like when the microphone was... Th- these mics are weird. Like, they have to be, like, right in front of your face. And if they're here, they give you, like, sort of a subtlety to the way you're talking. And then you sound like Elizabeth Holmes. <laughs> so, I, so I sound like a female corporate con artist if no, I no you only sound like that one because you can't it's like you know like you can't say that any man sounds like Sam Kinison other than Sam Kinison <laughs> <laughs> you can't say that any female sounds like Elizabeth she doesn't even sound like her you know that's a that's how she you know that's part of the reason why she got busted was that friends from college like what the fuck is that girl talking like that for oh my god so it's, it's like the Unabomber thing yeah. like somebody who knew her exactly right. people who knew her from college were like what is going on with her voice <laughs> what is this what is this thing you're doing um, See, that's a lesson. Never have, you know, if you're going to be going to crime, don't have friends in college. Or, like, start the shit early. Right. Like, yeah, in exactly. high school. And right. they come up with, like, a lacrosse injury for why you're, uh, <laughs> she got hit with a high-speed ball to the <laughs> neck. And that's a damage of vocal cords. Um, listen, thank you very much for everything you do. Joe, I, thank you. I really appreciate that you're out there. It means... It means a lot, not just to me, but to a lot of people that you are a legitimate, objective source of information, and it means a lot. It's so, so important. Likewise, I can't tell you how much it makes me laugh that uh, your viewership is so much more massive than the... uh than the the news stations i just i just get a kick out of that it's confusing <laughs> it's, i have no idea how it happens i'm really baffled i'm not kidding like every week when it's still number one i'm like still <laughs> crazy i don't know what the fuck happened there's 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 no plan behind this you right know? that's what's so bizarre about it right but it's hilarious well thank you no no, no i mean i mean that in a good way like oh, I do too. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah i find it hilarious too yeah it is it's like okay yeah <laughs> um, your Substack. Tell people how to get to it. Yeah, uh, taibi.substack.com. Um, 
uh, spelled yeah. Taibi for people who don't know. T A I B B I. And then you are what is it M Taibi on At M Taibi on Twitter. Yeah. And do you have an Instagram as well? Um, God, I don't even know it. Okay. I, I'm, so, I'm barely on barely on it. So it's just it's Stubsec, really just those two things. Taibi.substack.com. Right. Uh, and um, yeah and. Uh, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Anytime. Open invitation. All Appreciate right. you. Thank Excellent. you. Bye, Thanks, everybody. Jim.